He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, September 26th, 2020. These are the days of awe. What an awesome show I have for you today. Mario Nicholas is a columnist for the Colorado Sun, also an attorney. He joins me in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge to kick around current events. Speaking of the Colorado Sun, Jesse Aaron Paul is an ace reporter over there. He's covering all the big stories in Colorado. He, too, is coming up. But right now, my boyhood hero, a civil rights trailblazer, and an NBA Hall of Famer. While we have the Nuggets and Lakers going on, let's talk to somebody who played for Denver and the Lakers, and he's in the Hall of Fame, and he's an Olympic gold medalist. I can't believe it. Here he is, Spencer Haywood. I can't believe I have you on my show. You are my boyhood hero. How are you, sir? I'm fine, sir. How are you? Fantastic. By way of introduction, I grew up in Denver, fourth generation Denverite, a Jewish kid, played basketball at George Washington High School against a guy you know, Michael Ray Richardson, who played Emmanuel. And while we were in junior high, we watched a guy named Spencer Haywood turn Denver basketball upside down. So I can't tell you what an honor it is to speak with you. And I loved your book. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's tell my audience, and if it's okay with you, Mr. Haywood, we will tell my audience about the Spencer Haywood rule, battles, basketball, and the making of an American iconoclast. I'm a lawyer, but I had to look up that word iconoclast, but it describes what you did. Congratulations on the book, and uh, tell us what it's about. You know, it starts off with my my childhood in Mississippi and growing up as a young man as a farmer in Mississippi, which was then called sharecropping, but it was just actually you're working for someone else, picking cotton. My whole family picked cotton. I started when I was like six, as really started, but as a kid. When you when you're born in my county in the Delta, your mother gets like maybe two or three weeks off, and then you swaddle the baby on the back, and then you go back out into the fields and you're picking cotton and chopping cotton and you're harvesting cotton and so on and so forth. So I've been in the field from the time I was born until I left Mississippi at 14 and 15. Can we just go back to Silver City? Because it's so foreign to me as a kid. For your audience, there is no silver and it ain't no city. And you're talking to a silver man and now you live in Vegas, if I'm right. And I remember that Silver City casino right across from the Stardust in the Frontier. I bet that caught your eye, too. Uh, Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, but my population in my hometown was 300 at max. 
I know and your beautiful mother, Eunice, never wanted to go to the big city. She couldn't believe it when you moved her out to Seattle and that lake house. She never even went to Jackson, Mississippi, because it was too big for her. Am I right? Too big for her. Exactly. But, you know, you're talking about farming communities, and they are, they are the same. Whether you in Grand Junction, Colorado, or mm-hmm. Trinidad, Colorado, right. you know, other places where farming is, you know, is exceptional. People do not go to the big city. You, you do farm work. You stay on your, in your community. Well, let me just tell you how picking cotton as a kid was such a bad thing, but it, was, it turned out to be such a great thing. What happened was picking cotton as a kid and chopping cotton, you worked from sunup to sundown. You, weren't, you learned work ethics. And then, and then you would be the greatest rebounder of all time. In right, Denver. but I got to tell you how I got there because I, I, you know, because you're pulling a sack of a hundred pounds, your legs build up, and you're picking from two rows. You get hand-eye coordination, so the higher power was was grooming me for basketball while I was picking cotton. So that's the whole story about that. But 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 it wasn't the whole story because it was the Jim Crow South. Yes, it was. You spent some time in Colorado. Let me just paint the picture for real. Please. You know, like Jim Crow South, I couldn't go to the bathrooms. I couldn't go. It was whites only. I couldn't drink from the water fountain, whites only. Everything was controlled by the Klan because the sheriff department, the police department, and all of the members were Klansmen. And so you live to learn and, and, and keep your mouth shut to, to to just go with the flow. And then on the death of John F. Kennedy, when the assassination took place, they took us kids and lined us up out on the golf course and said, well, we got your (laughs) nigga-loving president, Mm. so we're going to hit some golf balls at your head. So we hit golf balls at our head. That was a powerful part of the book. I I loved it. But I I, want to apologize to you on behalf of the people of Denver. I don't know if you realize it, but back in the 20s and 30s, when my Jewish grandfather was trying to practice law in Denver, this was a Klan town, too. Some guy came from the South, got them all worked up. And for about a decade, Denver was dominated by the Klan. And I'm sad to say that some of that rubbed up on your Denver experience because you encountered some racism. Well, let me just tell you how I got to Denver because, see, I mean, most people say, oh, you know, you got to Denver and you started with the Rockets at that time, which is now the Nuggets. But no, what happened was I played at Trinidad State Junior College. And as an 18-year-old freshman, the Olympic team came calling and said, but Kareem is boycotting. Elf Hayes and Wes Unsell have signed their contract. So we need someone to save America. So I was like, yeah, well, you going to get me some gear? Come on, I'll save it. <laughs> and so I went to the Olympics and set records in four different categories and won the gold medal for this country. At not then just any Olympics, the famous 1968 Mexico City, Bob Beeman, and the protest. The protest. I spoke with John Carlos last week. We were talking. So me, him, me, John Carlos, Tommy Smith, Bob Beeman, Lee Evan, Diva Dataroni, she was the swimmer, Dick Fosbury, the Fosbury flop oh, was the first time he was right. introduced at the 68 Olympics, and... 
And when we got down there, there was a there was an attempt to boycott that 68 Olympics. And we had Dr. Harry Edwards, we had Martin Luther King, we had Jesse Owens. I know it's deep. We had Jesse Owens. All of them was there to keep us from doing something, uh, as we said, stupid. <laughs> it was unbelievable. <laughs> but we'd have got there. So they and Wilma Rudolph, all of those mm. great Olympians and great historic people were, were trying to keep us from, you know, doing something not not just wasn't good for us or the country. You were not just a member of the team as a teenager. You led the team in scoring. You led the team to the gold medal. You saved America, although they got knocked off, what, by Yugoslavia before you met them in the finals? No, 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 no. We won it all. I know you won it all, but you didn't have to face the Russians at the end because they got knocked off, didn't they? They got knocked off by the Yugoslavians, yeah. Right, but you were sensational. Yeah, I set a record in scoring the most points in the history of America, which held until 2012, broken by Durant shooting three-pointers. You know what? <laughs> Is that fair? Shouldn't there be an asterisk when it gets broken nah, by three-pointers? you got to let it all. you got to let it all flow. And I also broke the record and rebounded in field goal percentage. Still field goal percentage. Over 70%. Yeah. And then how did you end up coming to Denver? So then I came back to the University of Detroit. Right. And then when I got to the University of Detroit, I played to one more season. I was uh, the outstanding college player, and Kareem was the MVP. And the ABA could not get Kareem to sign with the ABA. And so they ended up saying, well, let's go after Spencer Haywood. Uh-oh, he's an underclassman. What are we going to do? So Hannah Storm's father, Mark Storm's, and J.W. Ringsby, and Bill and Bill Ringsby, I think it was. Colorado trucking family, the Ringsby's, right. They said, well, look, let's go get John McLendon, who was the first black coach in the, in the, in professional, right. well, in second career up to uh, Bill Russell, but they got him as a coach. And they said, well, we're going to go after Spencer Haywood, but we have a problem with, you know, with the NC2A and the NBA and the ABA saying, no, he was an underclassman. So they came up with this, this dream idea that if we could sign one underclassman, we could get other underclassmen, such as Julius Irvin, all other guys who came after me. But if this guy could get five points and maybe two rebounds, then the gamut would work. So that year I got... 30 points and 19.5 rebounds for 82 games. Not I like, oh, it. I had one I had one good game. Oh, no, no, no. It was for 82. And I played a total of almost 46 minutes a night. And I was 19 years old. And I won MVP of the league, rookie of the year, MVP of the All-Star game. And then we made it to the playoffs. My first 12 playoff games, I averaged 36 points and 20 rebounds. What was the name of the arenas? Where did you play at in Denver? I'm going to test your memory now. Yeah, we played downtown there. Auditorium Arena. Auditorium Arena. Right. And that's where we got to play there in the Denver Prep League, too. It had about 6,000 right on top of the court. It was the greatest place to watch a game. 
greatest, greatest place to watch a game. And plus that altitude. Oh, Lord, that was beautiful. And, and then you also played at the Denver Coliseum, which seated about 10,000, where they still have yeah. the high school championships. And that's where you beat the Capitals in an amazing game seven. And I watched you get in a fight with Rick Barry, and I was interested yes. reading your book that you guys have interacted <laughs> a lot since then. Tell us about that skirmish with Rick Barry, because wasn't Julius Key a part of it? And Julius Key was a part of it. Byron Beck, he gonna say he wasn't. Jeff Cond was Condon was uh, was one of the one of the others, and Lonnie Wright was my protector. Oh my God, what a guy Lonnie! And Lonnie Wright, Wright was. hold on, Lonnie Wright played for the Denver Broncos and the Denver Rockets in the same season. And before that, where did he go to college? Colorado State. Exactly. Hey, watch out. Him and Bob Rule, all them boys. Did he have the thickest legs in the history of sports? Thickest legs. <laughs> yes. I mean, we could see your legs back then. But I have to tell you, Spencer Haywood, we never saw a season like it. You were so great. Tell us about Game 7 and that fight with Rick Barry. What happened in Denver when when it came, when the season ended? I won all of these awards, and the ABA says we got to give him a terrific contract. We're going to keep him in here, and we're going to bring about the change for the ABA. So they gave me this contract for 1.9 million dollars, and then I signed it because I just loved Denver and what what we were doing. So I just signed the contract. I was underage, didn't have an attorney or anything, and then. I get an attorney and start looking at the contract like, hey, wait a minute here. This is no money. And the contract was like you get like 100000 a year for five years. And then the one or for four years and the $1.5 would be paid to you in, a, in an annuity or later on. So the contract was like, okay, you get your paid, you get your 100000 a year for five, which would have been like low ball real low money because the nba and everybody else was paying like 253 and so they had put in for ten thousand dollars into the stock market and the stock market would generate over the 50 years or 60 years the 1.5 million dollars well, that might have been a good deal if you think about it but how did you find that lawyer al ross al ross <laughs> how did Hold you on. find him was he a denver guy <laughs> no no he was hotshot lawyer from la but what happened was then i would start getting payments from the contract from age 50 to age 70 and i would have to be an employee of ringsby truck line Right. As if the money would, would come clear. And I would pick it up. I would I would have to be an employee until I was seventy years old. I would start getting paid on the on the one point five from the age fifty to age seventy. That's if the stock market went great, everything went great. But I was like, wow. And then we got Al Ross and he just went nuts. And, and that led to the most impactful line of the book for me is when you and Al Ross came in to see Ringsby and basically say, <laughs> hey, you took advantage of a kid. What are you doing? And what Ringsby said to you really changed my opinion of him. <laughs> he said, you get your, your nigga ass out of here and take that Jew lawyer with you. 
We ain't giving you shit. We got you under contract. You cannot go to the NBA because you're still an underclassman. So we got you and nothing you can do about it. So go home and get ready play next season. I was like, oh, Lordy, what a nice man turned so mean. That is tragic for Denver basketball. Yeah, terrible. But I had I had experienced it in Mississippi, so it wasn't like, you know, okay. I know, but what shot. you and that Jew lawyer ended up doing changed basketball forever. So yeah. that was Denver's loss. Way to go, Ringsby. You cost us. I mean, if it would have worked out, if you would have been treated fairly, Spencer Haywood, could you have been a Denver hero like John Elway played your whole career here, maybe won NBA championships? Yes, of course I would, because I played my college ball there. And you liked it here? You could have lived your I life here? I loved it in Denver. But and then I had recruited Ralph Simpson the next year to come play with me because we played high school and we won it all in high school. So he left Michigan State coming there. We was going to get George Gervin. We was going to get some serious players in Denver. Can we just stop a second and talk about Ralph Simpson? Because I was a junior high kid watching you guys play. And you were just a force. You were like a coiled spring. You were like LeBron, only taller, and you could jump higher and a better rebounder. You were amazing, Spencer Haywood. But Ralph Simpson, he had Whoa. the sweetest, softest jump shot I ever saw, even to this day. Beautiful. They, I mean, just describe it. It was like butter. It was like butter. In high school, we played for the Class A state champions in the city of, for the city of Detroit. And at that time, the city of Detroit had been blocked out of winning its, the Class A state champion for 35 years. We got to the finals. I had 27 rebounds, 28 points, and 11 assists. Ralph Simpson shot 43 points in that, in that final game. And we won the we won the championship, but there's a key cornerstone of his shot. Most people said he didn't hit the net, didn't hit the rim on one shot. Oh. All nets. I mean, am I exaggerating? <laughs> Have you ever seen a better shooter? And where's he in some great not, shooting? Not a better shooter. No, 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 no. Well, you got one there now. You got one. You got another one. There. You got Jamal Murray. You got oh, Jamal oh Murray. You got Blue Arrow. Djokovic. It's, it's almost as exciting as when you played here, okay? Because it's so Jamal, it's, he's got a form of genius, and so does Jokic. These are moves that yeah. basketball people have never seen before. Yeah. And they're coming out of Denver under the Spencer Haywood rule. <laughs> well, right. Your whole team is under the Spencer Haywood rule. Well, the whole NBA. <laughs> Tell everybody how that smart Jewish lawyer and you. And you got the help of a, another Jewish guy, Sam Shulman, up in Seattle. Sam Tell Shulman, everybody yeah. how you changed basketball to allow for the Jamal Murrays and Tyler Hero for Miami. All of them. All of They're them. They're one and done. Before then, you had yeah. to, what, wait four years before you four became years a pro? Four years before you become a pro. And so what happened was I filed suit for the rights to play in the NBA. The NBA says... Oh, no, you can't because we, you are under our four-year ban. We have to have, you have to finish our four years of college or sit out, but you couldn't play, four, you have to sit out after your high school. So I said, I want to play now. I played one year in Denver. So I filed for the rights to play, thinking that it would be a lower court decision to now go on and play. All right, 
I won that lower court decision. Then the NBA filed, and they moved it to the federal court. Right, the Ninth Circuit overturned it. Yeah, overturned it, and then it went to the Supreme Court. But in the meantime, how they treated me was like they would let me come out on the floor, and I get ready to jump ball or standing in the corner getting ready to receive the ball, and they would say, ladies and gentlemen, we have an illegal player on the floor, Mm -hmm. number 24. We have an injunction against him. And the injunction would read that I would have to leave the grounds in which this arena set on. And in Cincinnati, they put me out into the snow. Wow. And it went on like that for a complete year, basically. Chicago Bulls, the great Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls. Chet Walker and the Chicago Bulls sued me that year for $600,000, claiming that he hurt his ankle in the warm-up, watching me dunk in the warm-ups. And that went on and on like that. And finally, we, the year ended and was coming to an end. And we was at the Supreme Court, and that's when they made the decision. But I still wasn't accepted because the NBA owners had told the NBA players, the older players, Wilt and Jerry West and all of those guys, that if this rule stood, they would be put out of a job because the young players will come, thus the Jamal Murrays and everybody else would be coming into the league and drive out all of the senior players. So the, the, the union did not support me. So I was still all alone. And then Kareem stepped up and said, well, I'm going to support him. I'm coming out on the floor. And that's when it kind of changed. But I, I lived through this thing for 50 years, and they will never say, it is the Spencer Haywood rule. They always say it's one and done, early entry, hardship, anything but what it is. It is the Spencer Haywood rule, and I can't get the players, Chris Paul and the Players Union, to go ahead and rename it. I mean, what's the problem? Y'all benefit, you, LeBron, all your executive committees. But It is the Spencer reason, Haywood rule, but a, a lot of the individual know. players have given you credit, and I didn't want to take my precious time with you, but I'm going to no, play okay. for my audience the sound bites of Kobe Bryant paying tribute to you, acknowledging what you did for him coming oh, right yeah, out of Lower Marion High School, and the big ticket, Kevin Garnett, giving you credit. Yes, sir. So anybody who knows basketball knows that you changed it, but can I go to Lou Alcindor, who became Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and I've mm-hmm. looked at the man. I think he's brilliant. And for him to welcome you back and for him really to give you the opportunity to go to Mexico City, what is he like, Kareem? Is he as special as it appears? He is more than special. And now, you know, for whatever reasons, I guess basketball has not been that kind to him either, you know, because we both sometimes we sit around and having dinner. We talk about, man, we did all of this for the game. And, and we are not like, we're like the la- the last thought, you know, like when everybody has done everything, then they say, well, okay, Spencer. And they always say Kareem a little bit more now, but my name never come up. So. <laughs> no, but I was impressed by Kareem in the wake of the racial conflicts in the country. And, you know, guys like Nick Cannon and a few athletes spoke out in an yes. anti-Semitic way. Your buddy Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wrote a column in The Hollywood Reporter castigating that, that, telling them to knock it off. I was really 
impressed by that. Did you take notice of it as well? I took notice of it, but I'm saying for the Jewish community, because he's a Muslim, he is not like a hater of Israel or Jewish. He's a righteous person, a righteous human being. And that's why he stood up and said, hey, wait a minute. That's that's wrong. You can't do that. That's been the Jewish community has been with us through civil rights, through everything. In fact, going back to Mississippi, the only good thing about working in the cotton field is that I was working for a Jewish owner. <laughs> really? Yeah. So he would give us time off and say, hey, you know, like, you don't have to come in right now. But everybody else, boy, they were like, whoo, shit. And he couldn't play. He didn't play at golf on the country club either. <laughs> right. They were restricted. And it's interesting. Yeah, well, you... he, owned, he, owned all, he owned most of the county and he couldn't play at the golf course. Wow. Like, just like me. <laughs> and then you got to know Sam Shulman, who championed your cause through the Supreme Court. Tell me about Sam Shulman and the role of that Jewish guy in your life. Sam Shulman says, Spencer, you come in here with the Sonics. I'm going to fight for you tooth and nail. And I'm going to pay all of your legal expenses. And I was like, for real? And he said, I'm going to teach you a lesson about Jewish loyalty. You know, he's a New York boy. Loyalty. Uh (laughs) And he showed me. He went out and got Frank Rothman, you know, who who did the free agency for for, for baseball. All these people. Frank. Kurt Flo- but he got his, he cut his teeth on my case. And we had Governor Pat Brown, who was the gov- former governor of California, who his son Jerry. is uh, Jerry Brown. Right. And we had Jack Quinn, the foremost uh, attorney in the world at that time. So, I mean, we went to battle with, with, with against the NBA, against the NC2A. And against the rings, I mean, against Denver, because Denver was coming back and saying that I I violated my contract by leaving and they wasn't going to let it go. Wow. What a legal team you had. And you emerged victorious along the way. You got to interact with Thurgood Marshall. What was that like? Yeah, man, that was beautiful. And and so (laughs) tell you a Thurgood story. So after the case was won and everything. And my dad, Will Robinson, who raised me, he was not my real dad. My dad passed. He set up a time for me to, when I played against Baltimore, the Bullets. I want you to go and have a little dinner with Thurgood, and I'm going to come in town. So I'm sitting up there with those two talking. We're talking about Jackie Robinson, all of this stuff. And I says to them, when are we going to get the order in? I want to get my filet mignon steak. Oh, and they just laughed. Yeah. No, but they just laughed and said, boy, this is young boy. <laughs> they thought that was the funniest thing, oh. you know, that I was thinking, I want to eat. And you won 7-2 to in the Supreme Court. William O. Douglas, yeah. another famous jurist. When you watch all yes. that's going on with Wonderful. the U.S. Supreme Court, you more than most people realize how significant the high court is. How significant, because Justice Douglas and and Marshall, I mean, these people were, this was like, this is how important it is. People don't understand the importance of the Supreme Court. It's so important, because you can set laws, you can 
You can turn back health care. You can turn back a lot of things. You can turn back voting rights. You can do so many things with that court. So it's important that we get out and vote and get active now. And I don't care who, who you vote for or what you do, but I know we better be active. Well, here's the thing. I want people to vote, and I want them to vote Donald Trump out. That's where I'm coming from. Cause you know, I'm trying to be non-political. Man, this man got us in a pandemic. He got us in a pandemic. I mean, come on, man. This guy right. got to go. Yes, it's just common sense. Lie to us every day. Every day, many times every day. Every day, man. Come on, you got to love the people that you serve it. And he talks trash about the NBA. And what do you think all those Everything. people who say, I'm not going to watch it anymore? I'm thinking, wow, that's your loss. Have you watched the Nuggets? It's the best have entertainment in the world. Have you watched the Nuggets? That's all I have to say. Have you watched the Nuggets? Yes. Who are you rooting for in this series, Spencer Haywood? Are you part of Laker Nation or Denver basketball? No. If you go on my, um, if your audience will go on my Instagram account, Spencer Haywood, 24, you will see who I'm running for. And I posted it about Denver, my life in Denver. It's on now. It was posted last week. You know, I do Twitter and I see that you've been talking about but your Twitter, past. Twitter, I'm not hip like you kids with Instagram. I'm going to get there, though. But <laughs> Yeah, but I got it on Twitter. Why do you like Denver? What, what is your best memories of Denver, Colorado? Because, all right, Denver brought me out. I know it's a little personal. Denver brought me out for the 50th anniversary. And and as they was introducing me at, at in the middle of the floor, I didn't know I was the only MVP in franchise history. I don't think there's been anybody who even came in second no, or third. I right. know, but I didn't know. So and then we, we, we had a nice long talk about, you know, them retiring my jersey in Denver because that's where the whole franchise started. That's how we got to the first playoff. All of this stuff happened. But then we had a lot of people writing in saying, well, he only played and he left us high and dry. And I was like, they don't know the truth. I didn't leave you high and dry. <laughs> Y'all threw me out with a bad contract. <laughs> And so I pull for Denver because, you know, that's who gave me the honor, say, two years ago and brought me in town and treated me really royally. So I, I respect that. You were part of Laker Nation for a while, and you know LeBron, you know their rich history. You were part of it. And you wore yeah. number 24 before Kobe Bryant came along. You wore that yeah. number in Kobe Denver? Kobe had both of my numbers. 28, 24 was my number. He wore my number eight. In the Olympics and after, <laughs> and they wore number 24. And he was the guy who was working with me on doing the Spencer Hayward story before he passed. What was Kobe Bryant like? You know, I covered his court case here in Colorado. That was unfortunate, but he rose yeah. above it. Talk about a guy getting off the it. mat and above. coming back. But uh, yeah. I didn't get to know him personally. What was he like as a man? Just a great human being, just so kind and so caring. You, you felt you felt his heart when you talked with him, when you was around him. You felt his heart, his compassion. And what he did for women basketball was less like, I mean, I know he's great for NBA, but what he's done for women basketball, because I have four daughters and two of them played uh, Division One. So <laughs> I was just, I mean, this man was such, he was in such a good place. 
before that helicopter went down. And he was just, and his daughter with him. It was just. Oh, it's terrible. It's still sad. It's still sad to me. You know, it's just still. And this year he would have been, you know, he would have been right there celebrating on that, on the sideline, acting crazy with LeBron and all of them through that. So. Right, and he would have joined the Hall of Fame in Springfield, where you are. And one of the things that we were talking about is that I would be one of the presenters mm. because he's under my ruling. So it was it's just going to be so wonderful. I still would probably be a presenter with the, with his family, you know. What about LeBron? We talk about him a lot because he's become more than just an athlete. He is King James, yeah. and he's got a big platform. James. How do you think he's using it? He's using it wisely. He's doing the right thing. He's he's really a special player, special individual, and he's a good person. But he did cut me out of <laughs> shut up and dribble. He did. Well, that's his shame. His book. No, right? no. He, he did take me for like two days. I mean, I came down, flew down twice. And I'm like, LBJ, how you cut me out? And all y'all under it. <laughs> Including Chris Jackson or Mahmoud. I'm like, what are you doing? But they said they're going to do something else special. So we shall see. Another famous Denver basketball player, Mahmoud. But you didn't yeah. quite get back to me on that Rick Berry bite. Did you punch him? Did he punch you? Oh, the Rick Berry fight. Oh, I punched him so hard and I got him down on the ground and I beat him up and I then I like said no Warren Jibali was over there. You know you weren't gonna get too oh, far. Yeah. Warren Armstrong Warren Armstrong yeah, became Warren Jibali, the Oakland Oaks. Yeah. I know my ABA. Okay, well I'm just saying, you know, you might get a punch in, but you're gonna be looking over your shoulder. Warren's coming somewhere. Oh boy. So Rick and I just we just had a little tussle. It's you know, basketball players don't fight. And when you guys get together, do you talk about it or do you relive that at yeah, all? Yeah, and I talk about how many I dropped on him <laughs> when we won when we won that Western Conference. <laughs> In fact, we're gonna do another talk about that. We had an ABA chat one uh, not too long ago. Julius Irvin, George Gervin, Rick Barry, Dan Issel. Artist Gilmore, <laughs> we were like a little bit loony. Can we talk about Dr. J for just a minute? Because he is so famous and renowned as a hoopster, but you had to see him in the ABA to see how great he was. Sort of like you. I mean, you were great in the NBA. You're a Hall of Famer. But if you missed the ABA days of Spencer Haywood or Dr. J, you're missing a big part of this story. Am I right? Yes. And the other thing about Dr. J, it was just so incredible. I mean, about this, and not just Dr. J, but the ABA, for an example. When the merger came about, the only thing that the NBA is not using from the merger is the basketball. Everything else is our, the, the, the style of play, everything was ABA basketball. The three-pointer? The three-pointer, the style of play, and Kevin Durant and those guys, when I talk with them, they like, oh, I know my ABA stuff. That's what we're playing. <laughs> and I'm like, are you sure? No, it was a fun league. It, it, was, it was so cool to watch you guys. And I also want to just bring up Charles Barkley and Shaq. They talk about sports, but they talk about everything now, and you know those guys well. Tell us about Barkley and Shaq. Well, Barkley... Well, help me in my, they reached the film. I got a film that's out now on Amazon. 
but I don't want to just, you know, discourage it from the book. Right. But um, Charles has been involved. Shaq been involved. He was in it. Kobe was in it. Dr. Harry Edwards, Lenny Wilkins, Rick Welsh, Pat Riley, all of them are involved in this project. And they all have been, they have been really something special. So they're going to do a preview of the book hopefully on TNT and Charles and Shaq is going to do that. Let's see what they do. Well, you've got some broadcasting chops. I, I've heard you and I watched you with Craig Melvin the other day on MSNBC. I think your book, people should have you on because I, I still have to go back to your knowledge about race relations. Sad for what you experienced in Denver with Ringsby saying that racist yeah. thing to you. But what's going on in the world now? Because I have kids. In fact, I was going to tell you that my son goes to high school with Julian Hammond's grandson, who just won the state oh. championship as a quarterback. I don't know if you realize that, Julie Hammond's kid. Uh, grandkid. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And, and so, Julie Hammond. you remember him, sweet little lefty? Yeah, 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 lefty. Shoot, I'm please. We started together. I know it. I know it. He averaged yeah. double figures. I was looking at your stats. Still so amazing. Who averages over 20 rebounds? Spencer Haywood. That's <laughs> Or Moses Malone. You paved the way for Moses Malone. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. He had my name in his shoe for a season. Right. You got involved in Nike. I've had Bill Walton on my show. And in his book, I don't know if you read it, Back from the Dead, he, for whatever reason, ignored Phil Knight, and that gave you an opportunity to go with Nike, right? Right. And then I I, I did a contract with Nike, and I didn't, because I was so busy with everything, I didn't even, like, think about it. I was like, and then I had another agent that came in, not Al Ross, but another one said, okay, I'll do the contract for you. And then we, on, we are on the road, and he says, oh, you can't figure out how to get my 10% out of this deal. In fact, Nike is not going to make it. Let's take the cash out. Ooh. And we took the cash out, which now I'm like a less than a billion dollars short. Right. <laughs> what it could have should have been. The great part of what it book, yeah. I don't want to give away the ending, but after some ups and downs and you went to New York, you married a beautiful model and had a the great mom, family. Yeah. Then you encountered uh, cocaine addiction, which took down Michael Ray for a while and David Thompson here in Denver. Took down David Thompson, a lot of us, yeah. I, I dealt with my addiction like it was like a two-year stint, but it was horrible, just horrible because I was free-facing. And even whatever way you do it, it, it just it's just a horrible experience. It was demonic. It was... Ugh. Right, and that ended. You run with the Lakers. You played some more after that, but yeah, I played after that. I was shit. I was damn near the comeback player of the year after that. But you know, it didn't take me down because what happened was I missed three games with the Lakers, and Kareem missed three games that season as well in the mm -hmm. playoff. So, <laughs> so now all the Lakers are saying, "Oh man, we." We did you wrong. I understand because you know we were all we were all dabbling, so it wasn't really you know. But I would never tell. I would never say who and what. It was a different time. You write in your book it how was a different time. Yeah, cocaine. I guess was all around Denver. David Thompson is about my age, and uh, I guess in Denver he got in trouble. With it, but didn't he take a fall at a nightclub in New York? Yes, yeah, Studio Fifty Four. 
Right. And New York had to really be something for a young man with a lot of money. Dangerous. And then I am a young man with a lot of money in New York. But not only that, I had the finest wife in the country. Mm-hmm. And Iman, she was a grand model for the world. So when we got to L.A., we were like clean in New York and everything. But once we got to L.A., I mean, all of these parties, everything was happening. And 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 she didn't do it. But I, I, I was at one of the parties one night, a big Hollywood party. I can't tell you the names because they were shut down my book and everything else. <laughs> how did you beat it, Spencer? How, how do you beat addiction? And how do you recover so well like you've done? Well, let me just tell you how I got in it first. Sure. I got in it because all of a sudden everybody was like, you know, so organic out in California, Los Angeles. Hey, if you want to do coke, you don't snort it. You just put it in this bottle here and wash it out and you smoke it on this little pipe here. And this is before Freebase and all that stuff came about, but it was Freebase. And so <laughs> I did it and I was like, oh, my God, it was like it was like I was addicted the first time. And so I went through that whole process for a couple of years. And then my third year, I decided to seek, I couldn't do it alone. So I went to a treatment facility. I did my first 30 days. And then after that, I said, I don't feel safe going back. So I did another 30 days. And then I did a journal where I drove from California to Mississippi. And I started making meetings all across the country, just making my 12-step meetings. And I got to see where I had came from and what, what the heck was I doing throwing away everything on this little journey. Then I took a trip to Egypt throughout Africa to get a feel of what I, what my sobriety should be like. And I got into the program and I've been into the program. This is 31 years. So, wow. Congratulations. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I still, I know people don't like talking about it, but I, I, I still see my psychologist and my psychiatrist I still get help. And my 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 29-year-old daughter saw me doing all of this stuff. So as a young girl growing up, and she, she got her degree, her, her doctorate from the University of Denver as well. But she said, I want to be a psychologist. And so now she's a practicing psychologist because of me, because of my craziness. See, that's the good things that happen. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a wonderful story. And your yeah. book is uplifting. Yeah. But along the ways you examine your own self and, you know, right now are the days of awe between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which hits on Sunday sundown. And this is the time for Jews to repent and atone for their sins. And everybody's looking for inspiration and some self-reflection. When you looked in the mirror at yourself, a lot of it was the trauma you experienced as a young boy with racism in Silver City, yeah. where if you even looked at a white person, they could punch you in the face. I mean, what kind of way is that to grow up? And I did get punched in the face. I did get put in jail because I, I, I looked at a, a white woman. At the age of 14, I spent a night in jail because I got in a fight with Willie Harris over at the country club. He put a quarter. He He spent a whole day, I guess, melting a quarter into a nail. And then when I reached to pull it off the counter, it was nailed down. And so he punched me in the face. Mm. And I tried to fight back. And then the Klan came and said, you're going to jail. And they had two purposes. 
the first purpose was to put me in jail. The second purpose was to keep me on the farm. Once a big guy gets big and you put him away in jail and he can't go back to high school, you take him down to parchment to the prison for a half a year, and then he's relegated to the farm for the rest of his life. That was the indigenous slavery that was going on in Mississippi in my time. I lived through it. Right. And not knowing your father, you write about so many times the white guys raped black women. And I believe that's yeah. in your family. Genealogy. That happens in my family. My mother was raped. Terrible. Yeah. And I have, a, I have, a, uh, my, my sister Verge is a mixed child. They didn't have choices. They just, they just did it. You have kids, I have kids, and congratulations on being a grandpa. Now you got boys. They're going to be first-round yeah, yeah, choices, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, first time. <laughs> right. Boys. You know, that's exciting. I'm excited for you. Again, I have four daughters. They're wonderful ladies, but I have two boys, and Iman and I have a young girl, a young daughter, because our, our oldest daughter have a, have a, a, a daughter, and she's now working on a uh, son, too, now. So it was like, <laughs> so it's kind of fun. Now I've been with my wife, Linda, my current wife. This is 30 years with her. She sounds wonderful. Way to go on that, too. What about race relations in America, Spencer Haywood? Is it going to get better? Will our kids help change the world? Is this the last gasp of racism? They will change the world. We got one, we got one obstacle that's sitting in the yes. way. And if you get that obstacle out of here, I'm telling you, America is going to be the best place. We're going to have race relations. We're going to have continuous growth. We're going to have all this wonderful stuff. But we got to admit to this, this, to this disease and get this disease out of here. Not only the pandemic, but the person in charge of the pandemic. I think Donald Trump is a racist. I don't like to label people think? something like that. Right? You think? You think? No. Well, it, <laughs> I, I don't call people racist generally. Yeah, I know. I'm, neither am I, but I'm saying, but you think? <laughs> yes, I do think. And so I'm working yeah. my butt off in Colorado. I think Colorado is in the bag for Biden, but you live in Nevada. What's going to happen out there, Spencer? Hey, we're we're going to be all right out here. We're going to do good. You know what a great philosopher said? A fool is thirsty in an abundance of water. So we have to be careful. A fool is thirsty in an abundance of water. Nice. You know who that great philosopher was? No, tell me. Bob Marley. Bob Marley. Right. <laughs> I have a troubadour on my show. He loves reggae and he's mourning yeah. the death of Bob Marley's friend. What was it? Toots? Something like that. Anyway, if you know reggae, yeah. you might know that. Yeah. Toots and the Matrix. Yes. 2020 has been a terrible year. What do you predict terrible. for the future? Are you an optimist, Spencer Haywood? Or? Yeah, I am saying this is going to happen. We're going to get new politics. We're going to have another five good years of calmness. We're going to grow exponentially in America. We're going to show the love and the teamwork that America is built on. We are going to have a special, special time. This was just like when I was using Coke. This is just like we had to hit rock bottom. And we didn't hit rock bottom. And now we're going to have this, 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 this paradise that's going to be coming. I mean, it's just going to be a beautiful time in America. I'm looking forward to it. I like that optimism. And if you want to have a great year, 
buy yourself this book, the Spencer Haywood rule. Please buy the book. I mean, battles, basketball, and the making of an American iconoclast. And I looked up iconoclast, and it's a destroyer, <laughs> a person who attacks uh, cherished beliefs or institutions. And you changed basketball, and you did it for the better. You really did because for the better, yeah. Basketball is the ultimate meritocracy. And we're a capitalist yes. country. You put those things together and you get the greatest sports league in the history of the world. And why not have the best compete against the best? And I saw you when you were 19. You are one of the best of all time, Spencer Haywood. I can't tell you how excited I am to have spoken to you. Thank you so much. And let's go Nuggets. I love that, too. Can they come back from 3-1, really? You're the expert. They came back three twice already. And if Anthony Davis' ankle gets puffed up and maybe rolls I don't care more. what happened. I don't care if his ankle is good. They have came back three times when they said, and two times they said it can't be done. They have done it. For some reason, they thrive when they are really down and out. So I'm looking forward to it. I am and they, again, again, the guys might say something really nice about me and Denver on TNT for the la for the game. Tomorrow. I'm going to tweet them to do that because, you know, they were, tell them to do the right they, thing. those guys are too young, Barkley and Shaq. But I was there. No, they don't know. And there was you were unstoppable. I don't know what it was, but you had more energy and you just jumped faster than anybody. The cotton picker. I kept telling you, it was the cotton field. Uh, it was the training ground. I know we don't like to think about it, but it was the training ground. Well, it was the greatest basketball year in the history of basketball because there's never been a 19 year old player to play, and you never had a guy who won rookie of the year, leading scorer, leading rebounder. MVP of the All-Star Game, and I was averaging 30 and 20. There's no hands that Will Chamberlain didn't do it. Nobody did it. Right happened right there in Denver. Denver, Colorado. Spencer Haywood, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. Good luck with the book and with your great family. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye now. Dan Levitt, Sandler Training. Hi, Dan. Craig sent me. Craig Silverman? That's him. Man, can I tell you a good story about Craig? I'd love it. Once Craig took his dog, Tuffy, to a singing competition. For what purpose? Well, the dog was going to be in a dog food commercial. And how did they do? Well, Tuffy did fine. That dog, he could sing. So did they get the job? No, they didn't. There was a problem. And what was that? Well, Tuffy only sang when Craig started singing. And when that happened, everybody around started laughing. You know, Craig's not a good singer. But Craig's a great talker. You know, he sure is. Now let's talk about how Sandler can help you. Great. My sales team really needs help. You've come to the right place. Sandler training can help you big time if you are a salesman or a sales manager. If you would like to learn more about Tuffy or me or how to make sales, Call my old friend, Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107, 303-829-2107. Tell him Craig and Tuffy sent you. This is the Craig Silverman Show, and I'm Craig. Our democracy is at stake. It's never been more important to let your voice be heard. 
Join the conversation and fight for our democracy. It is our duty and our constitutional right. Follow The Craig Silverman Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at C. Silverman Show. Be a part of the change. Now, back to The Craig Silverman Show. We welcome back my troubadour, our troubadour, Dave Gunders, with the perfect song, Somebody Help Me. I'm exhilarated by my interview with Spencer Haywood, and I thought you had the perfect song for this time of year and for the Spencer Haywood story. It's about a guy, well, you tell us about the song, Somebody Help Me. What inspired it? Craig, a fellow who I work with, he's a a lead carpenter on our projects. His son had an addiction to opioids, and for a period of six months or so, we would have conversations, and Many times my friend would cry, would be crying. He thought his son was going to die. And um, he was, he was addicted. He was shooting the stuff and it, that those conversations gave rise to the song. So it's about substance abuse. Spencer Haywood got addicted to cocaine and he had to overcome it. The thing about your song, it's not a downer. It's filled with the sense that this can be accomplished. And it's all about the person inside. Right. And, and fortunately for my friend and more fortunately for his son, he, his son actually had himself put in jail for six months. There was no other way for him to stop using. And he went to jail and he, and, and he came out. He's been clean ever since. But it was those conversations with my friend where he would say, you know, he loved his son and his son loves him. But he would say, my son, would he'll do anything. He'll lie. He'll do anything he needs to in order to get his next fix. So those kinds of things kind of were, were fodder for the song. But yes, it, it is hopeful because the, the, you know, the, 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 the person in, in who's addicted is saying, he's turning the corner. He's saying, I know it has to be me that's going to make this change. I love it. It's in your reggae style. Here is Dave Gunders playing the song, Somebody Help Me. Somebody help me, please. 
excuse only Tightens the noose that I put around my song and the bridge i love that line every excuse only tightens the noose around my head how do you come up with stuff like that well it rhymed i know but the way you construct your song i think it's just beautiful and it's upbeat we already heard about the happy ending these are the days of awe yom kippur starts sundown on sunday and it's a time for introspection, and that, too, is what your song is really about, right, Dave Gunders? Very much about introspection, pulling yourself up by yourself in order to, to improve your life. I think that's the spirit of Yom Kippur. Do you take it that way? How, how do you approach uh, the Day of Atonement? And is there some kind of apology you want to say to me? I'll go first. For anything I said wrong or did wrong in your presence, I apologize. I will do better next year. You're doing fine, and I don't. I don't uh, expect an apology. We. We. I. I enjoy being your friend. May your name be inscribed in the book of life, and may you have an early fast, my troubadour, the one and only Dave Gunders. Thank you, Craig, and good yuntif. Good yuntif to you. When we talk about medical directives, what sort of qualities are we looking for there? You're looking for somebody who cares about you, somebody who wants to take care of you, but also somebody who's not afraid of making that decision because, you know, bad things might happen. You know, if, if you have a, a son or a daughter who, you know, absolutely, you know, is, is a stereotypical mama's boy and can't imagine anything bad ever happening to his mom, and then suddenly has to make a decision about what kind of surgery mom needs to have or... You know, are we going to, what treatment option are we going to have for mom? And paralyzed by, oh, no, I can't have anything bad happen to mom. Not the right person. So you want somebody who can look at a situation, still loves their, still loves the person, but is able to do, do what's right and do what's necessary for your parents or for whoever you have that you're acting on behalf of. 
Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Hey there, I'm not going to take a lot of your time. I've been a lawyer almost 40 years. My brother was a lawyer, my father a Denver lawyer, my grandfather a Denver lawyer. If you have a legal problem, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800. Thank you. Now back to the Greg Silverman Show. I hope you download these episodes. I know I do. I want a record of what the world was like on September 26, 2020. And I want to go on the record with my opposition to the bullcrap I see coming forth from Donald Trump. And I'm really pissed off at the people who keep supporting him. How can a lawyer support Donald Trump? How can anybody with a brain or decency? The man is a racist, a bully, and a bad guy. I used to call Trump God's gift to talk radio. That's a little hard on God, don't you think? He is controversial, but it's gotten way past that. It is dangerous. This guy is facing felony prosecutions galore. And he knows that. And he's not going to go easily. And he carries nuclear weapons. Remember Scarface, how he went down? And the man is sadistic. When he calls the media the enemy of the people, listen to what he told the Minnesota crowd about the shooting with rubber bullets of MSNBC's Ali Belshi. He delighted in that. Listen to this. I remember this guy, Welchie. He got hit on the knee with a canister of tear gas, and he went down. He didn't. He was down. My knee, my knee. Nobody cared. These guys didn't care. They moved him aside. And they just walked right to It was like, it was the most beautiful thing. No, because after we take all that crap, for weeks and weeks, they would take this crap, and then you finally see men get up there and go right to... Wasn't it really a beautiful sight? Call law and order, law and order. My salute to Seth Myers. I like him as a late night comic. He's a great writer, good delivery, and he has utter contempt for Donald Trump, which is well deserved. Here is Seth Myers talking about Donald Trump crossing yet another line threatening not to leave. If he doesn't win, the election is rigged. Myers has the contempt we should all feel for this bullshit. President's falsely claiming the election is rigged. The GOP chair in Pennsylvania told The Atlantic on the record that they're considering a plan to steal the state's electoral votes if they lose. And Republicans are basically announcing their intention to use the courts to overturn the election results. And on top of all that, the president last night refused to commit to a peaceful transfer of power, effectively threatening violence unless ballots are thrown out and he's allowed to stay in office. Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transfer of power after the election? Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about 
the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. I and, understand that, but and, people are rioting. Do you commit uh, no, to making no, no. sure that there's a no, peaceful wanna, transfer of power? We want to have get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a very trans. We'll have a very peaceful. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. The more you learn about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the more there is to admire. I think the same is true of Joe Biden. Good luck, Joe, on Tuesday night at your first debate with Donald Trump. I bet on you. Betting on RBG was smart because she was an incrementalist and she had quite a life. Her rabbi, her friend, eulogized her. I believe the rabbi, a female rabbi, and it's interesting that RBG strayed from religion and Judaism because the way women were treated was second class. But now we have female rabbis, and one such rabbi gave the eulogy at the Capitol as she laid in state, making history. Here is this sound. Today, she makes history again as the first woman and the first Jewish woman to lie in state. Today we stand in sorrow, and tomorrow we, the people, must carry on Justice Ginsburg's legacy. Even as our hearts are breaking, we must rise with her strength and move forward. She was our prophet, our North Star, our strength for so very long. Now she must be permitted to rest after toiling so hard for every single one of us. May the memory of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Yita Rucho Batsirolea, forever and ever be a blessing. Zichrona Levracha. God, give us the strength and bless us with the courage, the intelligence, the bravery and the unbreakable resolve to pursue justice. Amen. Ruth Bader Ginsburg had the courage and the intelligence and the fortitude to speak up and warn us about Donald Trump. Even though it was an indiscretion on her part, she regarded him as such a faker. I think New Yorkers had this guy figured out way before we did. But now that we see what he's all about, how can anybody stay with him? I understand, yeah, judges, now a third Supreme Court justice, a 6-3 majority. Give us a break already. You got your judges. Can you give us back America? I still can't get over the fact that I got to interview Spencer Haywood. I was in the presence of Kobe Bryant quite a bit up in Eagle, Colorado, when he faced that drama in his life. Spencer Haywood knew Kobe, and Kobe knew Spencer Haywood. Here is sound of the late Kobe Bryant, number 24, talking about Spencer Haywood, number 24, and acknowledging the debt that Kobe's generation owed to Spencer Haywood for the Spencer Haywood rule. Well, I mean, he, uh, you know, he pioneered this whole movement. You know, he was the first one to, you know, to fight for what he believed in. And um, you know, it was because of him that I mean, he just opened up the door for guys like myself and Garnett and McGrady, Rashad Lewis, and LeBron James, and et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and it all started with him. And then another hoopster, Kevin Garnett, who was very good acting in the Adam Sandler movie, Uncut Gems. It's kind of violent, but I recommend it. 
Kevin Garnett, big ticket, another straight from high school player. He too saluted Spencer Haywood. I don't think a lot of people understand that um, without Spencer Haywood, there wouldn't be Darrell Dawkins, there wouldn't be Kevin Garnett, there wouldn't be Bill Willoughby. They would only think it would be a Moses Malone. You know, I think a lot of people don't understand the history of Spencer Haywood. He was the first. Um, I think he, I think he went to Supreme Court, and he was the first to be considered um, youth into a professional sport and into our game, and he's made an impact. So with that, um, I would like to congratulate Spencer Hayward for not just being born, but opening doors for a lot of people to come through and uh, display their talent in this great game. So congratulations. But forget about the players of old. Let's focus on the here and now. Our Denver Nuggets. It's so darn exciting. I love the Nuggets versus the Lakers playoff action. As they say in English, hope springs eternal. 3-1 deficit, we've overcome that before. And I think the Nuggets could maybe do it. Spencer said they could. And when you can fly like Jamal Murray, you remember this all-time layup from the other night? We will be talking about this for years. Go Nuggets. Just his fourth year, but these Nuggets have all been together for the most part. Now it goes, and oh, my goodness, what a basket. Jamal, because we got to see this. Murray is attacking. Look at him. Go up. No, I'm not going to dunk. Not going to use with my left, but the English. When we come back, let's listen to Jesse Paul, East reporter for the Colorado Sun. Thank you for listening. Follow the Craig Silverman Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at C. Silverman Show. And subscribe to the Craig Silverman Show podcast on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher. Don't quit on democracy. Be a part of this historic moment. Connect with us on social media at C. Silverman Show. In my practice of law, Michael Bailey, decisions are often left to a personal representative. God forbid a person gets killed. That's an important decision you can make ahead of time. Who is going to be your personal representative? What is your advice in that regard? So you want to pick somebody as a personal representative who has several qualities. Number one, you want them to kind of have a good sense of financial stuff and and matters like that so they can, they can deal with that. I have a friend who's really, really good and really, really smart and is scared to death to fill out a tax form because they don't quite, just the finances don't make sense to them. So you don't want to pick that type of person. You want to pick somebody who can understand finances. You want to pick somebody who's trustworthy, who will carry out your decisions. And if you can do it, you want to pick somebody who's not afraid of people not liking them or getting their feelings hurt. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. What an honor to welcome Jesse Paul, East reporter at the Colorado Sun, where I also serve as columnist at large. Jesse, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Tell everybody what you do at the Colorado Sun. I normally cover politics from the state legislature on up to Congress. And, you know, when the president comes to town, I'm usually there, too. And lately, I've been covering a lot of the coronavirus crisis across Colorado. 
Were you down in Colorado Springs when the president came in, what was it, February? I was. I was down there. I think it was uh, mid-February. Have you put that together with the Woodward disclosures about what the president knew as early as the first week of February, that it was airborne and dangerous? You know, I actually did just the other night take a look at that. You know, it's, it's pretty interesting. I think it was about a month before that rally in yes. Colorado Springs that President Trump got a lot of that information. And I actually went and looked at the transcript from that speech, and he didn't mention coronavirus at all. He didn't mention the word virus. He did talk about China, but strictly from a trade point of view. So it was not, it, you know, I think it was on people's minds, but in the background then, it certainly wasn't something that the president discussed when he was down in Colorado Springs. Right. But in retrospect, the president came and put all those people, what was it, in the world arena at risk? Well, Colorado hadn't identified coronavirus in the state at that point. So I don't know if we can quite say that, but, you know, the, the state now thinks that the virus might have been here as early as January. So it's it's a potential. And I think all of us were kind of walking around, not really knowing what, what risk we were at. Right. And Joe Biden was doing the same thing. But you would think the president had better intelligence and he had the respect for Bob Woodward to tell him the truth. Hey, Bob, it's bad. If only he would have treated us that way. But you are a reporter I'm the guy who's a pundit. You don't have to join in on this. But since you were in that crowd, it's kind of cool to talk about. The main thing that emerged from that Colorado Springs rally was the handshake and the adoring looks between Cory Gardner and Donald Trump. Isn't that the picture the Colorado Sun uses with regularity? Yeah, it was pretty interesting heading into that rally. We were really wondering how Cory Gardner would handle being on the same stage as, as Donald Trump because. Well, before then, there was certainly a lot of talk from Democrats and opponents of Gardner about his ties to the president. You know, there really weren't any pictures of the two together. I think there was one of, of Corey coming off of Air Force One for a rally. It was kind of grainy, maybe taken from like a, a TV shot or something like that. But certainly nothing to the extent of, you know, the two embracing on a stage in Colorado Springs. So it was really interesting to kind of see how that dynamic played out in person. You know, we've always known that, that Corey and Trump are, are, are very close to each other. But to see it was certainly kind of, I think that the word we used in some of the stories around that was like completed the the alliance between the two. Right. But when it came to the deep handshake and the luck in the eye, to me, it was Donald Trump doing the same kind of thing he did to James Comey in that photograph session in the White House. Let me draw you in close so you can't get away. You have to be loyal to me. And this picture says it. And I want you to remember it. Am I reading too much into it? I don't know how much from Trump's side of the relationship that was important. I mean, for us, from the view of the 2020 election, it, it, it represented Cory Gardner kind of leaning into the Democratic criticism of him that he was too close to the president. Right. He wouldn't even hear from John Bolton at impeachment. He, he said when he was confronted in October at what was it, a downtown hotel, you were probably there too, but a lot of Local reporters said, what do you think about this Ukrainian shakedown? Is it appropriate for a president to ask for foreign help, this and that? And he kept saying, well, we will get to it with an impartial hearing in the Senate. I don't, I don't think that ever came. I remember that. I bet you do too, Jesse. I showed up a little late to that event, so I actually missed the initial confrontation. But I did talk to Senator Gardner during that event, and I did show up. And, and, and that was kind of astonishing. I mean, it was one of the first times that we saw Senator Gardner kind of 
be more combative with the press. And it, it seemed almost like his, you know, he's a great public speaker. He's he's always able to flash a smile and kind of diffuse the situation. Um, but that was, that was one where I kind of saw that crumble a little bit. It, it was pretty fascinating. Maybe that was the moment when he sold his soul. But that's me, not you. Yeah, that's you, not let's, me. <laughs> let's talk about Jesse Paul, because when you were down there covering events in Colorado Springs, it was not your first time in a city under Pikes Peak. Tell everybody where you went to college. Sure. Like you, Craig, I'm a Colorado College graduate. Say it with pride. Don't you think it's pretty cool to be a CC grad? Of course. Yeah, no, I, I love Colorado College. It's it's a great place. And I love going back to visit Colorado Springs. I love Colorado Springs, too. I think I think both Colorado College and Colorado Springs are kind of underloved in the state of Colorado. I feel the same way. Now, CC did make the news with respect to COVID. You wrote about them. And then, of course, the news gets subsumed under the University of Colorado. But talk about COVID and Colorado College and now at the University of Colorado. Oi, what a mess. Yeah, I mean, we've seen across the country this kind of play out on college campuses. Students come back, they catch COVID, and things have to shut down. Colorado College was the first in the state to have to abandon, at least temporarily, its plans for in-person learning because of the number of students who tested positive. In fact, all three dorms at the school went under quarantine for two weeks at, at one point or another because of cases there. I don't know about you, Craig, but I would not <laughs> want to be stick, stuck in a Colorado College dorm for two weeks. Oh my gosh, that would have been terrible. Yeah, not fun. And so, you know, the Colorado College was kind of the focus for a little while. And then all of a sudden, uh, now the University of Colorado has become essentially, you know, the worst outbreak of coronavirus in Colorado since the virus first hit the state in early March. And now they've gone to remote learning for at least two weeks, canceled in-person classes for at least two weeks. And Boulder County public health officials have actually, you know, basically asked all 18 to 22 year olds in the city of Boulder not to congregate for at least two weeks to try and really get this thing under control. And violators face, I think it's a $5,000 fine and, and up to 18 months in jail. Uh, so it's it's a pretty serious situation. And, and you know, I think the the school and the public health officials, the governor, everyone's really kind of watching closely and hoping that this thing gets under control. Has Randy Corcoran filed the lawsuit on behalf of some CU student yet? I have not seen any lawsuits from anyone on behalf of CU students, but there are but, but there are people who are raising interesting questions about you know whether or not it's fair to only tell a certain age group that they have to stay inside and, and is that ageism and then also age discrimination and, and then also how do you enforce that? I mean, do you, do you walk around the neighborhood asking for people's IDs to find out if they're violating the public health order? So I, I think to me, the sense that I got after talking to those folks today was that it's really meant to just to be another stick that they can use potentially if things continue to get out of control. So we'll see. I don't know if anyone will be cited for it, but certainly, you know, they're sending messages that this is a really serious situation. I wonder if they will have sting operations like they do with liquor stores, send in underage people, try to get something going. I don't know. There are interesting civil liberties issues, but I believe in science. And to me, the science is demonstrating that when you have these gatherings, such as occurs with people in that age group, we went to Colorado College, it even happened there. That is what starts these spikes. Isn't it just data driven? Yeah, I think it's undeniable that when people get together without masks and are standing close to each other, that the virus spreads. That's just, I think, what everyone has kind of come to accept and learn from this. 
you know, a lot of people will look at CU or CC in this situation and say that, you know, the students are young and they'll be okay. And that's true. But what I often say is that, you know, these folks don't live in vacuums. They have jobs, so they go grocery shopping next to you or me. Some of them have family members that live in Colorado who might be old or have a pre-existing condition. And so while, you know, the 1,400 students or so that have tested positive will probably be okay, there's been no fatalities. I think one has been hospitalized. The potential is that, you know, those 1,400 people spread it to another 1,400 people who spread it to another 1,400 people. And then all of a sudden you have a really serious situation in your hands very, very quickly. Right. And we have to stop this whack-a-mole. If we could just work together, then we could see a debate to the point where the economy could come back, et cetera. This is the message of Governor Jared Polis. You are on the front lines reporting on this, Jesse. How is the governor doing? Is he communicating well with the media and with the public? What do you think? Well, you're the pundit, so you'd have to tell me. I mean, to me, to me, you know, I, it's been interesting. I think I've missed only two or three of his press conferences since the coronavirus began. And it's been really interesting to kind of see how he stepped into the role of kind of leading through a crisis so early in his term. You know, he's only he's less than two years into his, his first term as governor. And, you know, the pressures that he's faced and how he's responded to them, how he's kind of navigated pressures from both the right and the left, right, for people that want restrictions to be loosened and people think that he's crazy for doing, letting people do things as much as they are. So I think, you know, I, I think we're kind of still in the middle of it. And I think most of his decisions have turned out okay. Some of them have resulted in negative consequences. For instance, the reopening of bars and nightclubs was something that had to be quickly shut down because it wasn't working and it was leading to the spread of the disease. But, you know, it's hard to say because every week this, the situation changes. One week, everything could be fine. And then two weeks later, we're, you know, we got 1,500, 1,400 CU students who have tested positive and we're ordering people to stay home. So so it, it, it'll be interesting to kind of see how, how what the trajectory of this thing is. And I'm not sure we know exactly what the arc is. You know, early on, there were a lot of people who were saying that the, the governor was doing a good job at handling the crisis. But, you know, this, this wasn't a two-week event. It, it could last who knows how long. And now there's a recall effort underway. There's lawsuits, as you mentioned, right from Randy Corcoran. Republicans in the state legislature say they're not getting enough input. So, so I think it's it's kind of rem- remains like a, an unfinished book here. I'm curious to see how it all plays out. Well, since you mentioned I am a pundit, and I think the proof is in the pudding, Colorado's done okay. We haven't had the situations experienced in Arizona, Florida, New York, and God willing, we won't. Has it been perfect? Far from it. But I think Polis is doing his best. And I know him a bit. And he is a data driven guy. He also is a capitalist. He'd like the economy to open up and for Colorado to have its monetary budget replenished. But would you agree with me? Isn't he a data driven guy? Yeah. And and I think you've seen that in a lot of the decisions that he's made. And certainly his executive orders kind of discuss those, those data points. You know, he doesn't. He likes to talk about you know, specifically why he's doing X, Y, and Z and explain to folks. I've really valued as just a reporter how the state has, has at first there was a lot of problems with data transparency. And since then, they've kind of gone, I think, above and beyond to really share a lot of this data and to help us kind of understand as journalists to take a look under the hood at what's going on. And that's allowed us to kind of be able to predict things instead of waiting for you know the, the governor to say, for instance, that the situation is getting bad. But, you know, early on, there were issues, certainly with reporting about uh, like nursing homes and, and you know, the state wasn't saying where these outbreaks were happening. The Denver Post filed an open records request, got the information, and then the Colorado Sun went around calling counties and individual nursing homes to figure out that like 
a third of the people who were dying in the state, at least, were, were nursing home residents. And of course, that just worsened from there. So like you said, I mean, I think it's been an ebb and flow. There's, there's been, you know, it hasn't all been smooth and public health officials and, and localities have, have questioned the Polish administration and, and whether or not they've been transparent enough. What a time to be a public official. Governor Polis has so much on his plate, the catastrophe that is COVID, but also the race situation. This week, Breonna Taylor, grand jury came back, a prosecutorial decision was made, and there were demonstrations here in Colorado, in Louisville. And I'm wondering how you think Governor Polis is handling this. And what is the timeline on Elijah McClain? Someday, there's going to be a prosecutor standing up, perhaps Phil Weiser, who's been a guest on my show recently. And how will people react if there's no charge against an Aurora officer? Do you think there are parallels, Elijah McClain and Breonna Taylor? You know, I will say that yesterday, as everything was kind of playing out, I was thinking to myself, you know, what, what it might look like once Phil Weiser makes that decision, what it's going to look like in that press conference. And we really have no sense about how long that whole process might take. This is a kind of an unprecedented situation that the attorney general is reviewing a local district attorney's decision, which which you know well, right, as a former prosecutor, right. this, is, this is certainly highly unusual. We did a little reporting to kind of try and maybe map out what it would look like, but I think the kind of the conclusion that we came to was that this is this is so unknown, it's it's hard to say. Well, let me throw another wild card into that prosecutorial decision making. Dave Young, who made the no prosecution call initially. He's term limited and they have an election going on. Do you know who's running? I think I know one of the candidates, but I'm not. I'm, Brian Mason not is that. a Democrat. Right. Yes. And do you know who his brother is? I do not. Jeff Mason, the famous Reuters White House reporter. In fact, I think oh, wow. they might be twins. Did you know Jeff Mason was from Colorado? I did not know. He's been a guest on the show, too. So. It's amazing what an older CC guy can teach a younger CC guy. But I haven't been on the campaign trail. Normally, I would go to some events, but nobody can go except on Zoom. Tell us about the state of the race between Cory Gardner and John Hickenlooper. Well, I, you know, I think it's been pretty fascinating to watch politics kind of play out uh, over virtual meetings. You know, one of the fascinating things has been what events we can't go to. Certainly, Cory Gardner has allowed us some access. So far, we haven't been invited to one of John Hickenlooper's in-person events, but they've been pretty limited. Right now, I mean, I think uh, if the race were to happen today, polling shows that that Cory Gardner's got a significant deficit. And I think these next couple of weeks are going to be really interesting to see how he tries to make that up. Um, I know that his campaign's feeling good about the trajectory they're on, that they've been able to knock Governor Hickenlooper down with the attacks that they've leveled on his ethics. Complaints, but now the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg on Friday has kind of thrown a wrench into everything. It's really, it's really quite unclear, you know, how that's going to affect the race. I think it probably poses more problems for Senator Gardner than it does for Governor Hickenlooper, especially because Senator Gardner really needs people to pay attention to his messaging right now, which is to talk about his accomplishments and tear down the record of Governor Hickenlooper. And, and while people are paying attention to this other thing, huge Supreme Court seat being filled. You know, right. They're not going to be paying attention to his messaging. I don't think it's a wrench in front of Cory Gardner. I think it's an anchor. I think he's going to be stopped in his tracks because I've grown up here. I remember when Dick Lamb put in the legislation making abortion legal here in Colorado before anywhere else. We've always been a pro-choice state. 
And that's one of the big issues. I know nationally they're talking about the Affordable Care Act. That's probably popular in Colorado too, but when they overturn Roe v. Wade, it's not going to change the law in Colorado. It will in Mississippi and Alabama and maybe Missouri, but not in Colorado. And then every race is going to be about abortion. It's going to be terrible for politicians in Colorado. And right now, it's a disaster for Cory Gardner, who's probably plotting what he's going to do next. Although maybe Donald Trump can find a way to screw with voting and make him a winner. I don't, I don't even think that's possible. He's going to lose big. So I, I don't need you to comment on that. But is that what you were talking about with Colorado being a pro-choice state and Cory well, Gardner having this land on him? I think that's part of it. I mean, I think you know, what abortion rights advocates say is that this really makes, you know, their position more salient and that they've always kind of attacked Cory Gardner on this issue. And that now they can just point to the Supreme Court seat and, and his, you know, his his change in, in position from four years ago when he, when he wanted to hold off on nominating Merrick Garland, you know, being OK with pushing through a nomination now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think, again, there's it's just it's a huge web of complicated you know situation. Cory Gardner has put out the statement saying, of course, that he will vote to confirm a nominee, but he hasn't had any interviews where he's explained why his position changed from four years ago. And frankly, I'm, I'm pretty curious to see what, what he has to say about that and, and, and why he feels now that it's okay to move forward when four years ago, when the election was further out, it, it was not. I'm listening to that Michael Cohen book right now, and his explanation for what he did back in the days when he worked for Trump is hey, that's what the boss wants me to do. Best I can tell, Cory Gardner won't go against the boss. Even on this latest kerfuffle where Donald Trump is saying, I, I'm not necessarily going to peacefully transfer the government. And has Cory Gardner spoken up? Mitch McConnell has. Mitt Romney did. Has. has Gardner he done has. anything? He has. He, he said that that there will be a peaceful transfer of power and that you know, that's that's kind of the American tradition. So he's, you know, this, this is one of those examples where I think, you know, Senator Gardner is, is willing to split, split from the president. Right. But did he did he have a harsh word for the president on that? Did he say it's outrageous for him to even suggest otherwise? I don't believe so. No, I don't think so. I It's an opening for John Hickamooper, who might be the luckiest politician ever with these things happening around him. Is Heck in a good mood? He's certainly in the catbird seat, isn't he? I think the general consensus from the start has kind of been that this is Democrats' race to lose. And I think even smart Republicans would tell you that, too. You know, Cory Gardner's always kind of pitched himself as an underdog in this race. You know, I think Hick and Looper is working hard, and I think he's feeling pressure from, you know, the attacks that Republicans have leveled. And you've seen him respond with ads of his own, talking about his own accomplishments and his own character. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. I talked to him the other day. You know, he seemed fine. He didn't want to answer questions about changes to the Supreme Court. Um, I think he's really focused on he's really on message and focusing, you know, on his uh, on his efforts to you know, be Cory Gardner and, and uh, speak to voters about why he should replace him. How many debates will they have? I think there's four that are set up. And the first one I want to say is next Friday with the public chieftain. So. That, that, you know, that's an important thing for Gardner. I think part of the Republicans, you know, hopes for turning this race around is that Cory Gardner can make some significant inroads in these debates. John Hickenlooper struggled before in debate settings. And so, and Cory Gardner, is, as I talked about, is a, is a really, you know, slick tongue. He's, he's a smart speaker. He's, he's, a, he's a good public speaker. He went to CU Law School. Of course he's smart. 
right there you go so i i, I think it'll be interesting to see how those play play out and how they attack each other and we saw some of that last weekend where Gardner was at club 20 john higgin luber declined to appear at that debate and you know it was kind of uh it seemed almost like he was testing out his lines for for the for the first couple debates I noticed him at Steamboat, and he made that joke. He put it in the mouth of his eight-year-old son, which I think isn't necessarily right, but he claimed his eight-year-old said, Dad, I know when the coronavirus will end. And Corey said, when, son? And he said, right after the election. And then Corey got a laugh and said, well, maybe he's been listening to his parents too much. I thought that was terrible, implying that it's a hoax, just like the president, the boss, wants him to. Don't you think that was out of character for Cory Gardner and kind of a sign of how far he's gone toward Trump land? I, I haven't talked to the Gardner campaign specifically about those comments, so I, I, I can't say. But I mean, I, I, Cory has always talked to us you know, about the serious nature of coronavirus and the need to address it. You know, I think that, that was it was unusual to hear him talk about coronavirus in that way. Typically, he doesn't talk about the politics surrounding the, the, the virus. Now, I'm a big believer in data and momentum, and I hope the Nuggets can have that momentum to propel them to an NBA championship. But I saw momentum in 2018 in Colorado, where the voters said that Donald Trump is toxic. And good Republicans who held offices where they did a good job, like in Arapahoe County, where I live. They got thrown out of office just because they had an R after their name, which stood for Trump for a lot of people around here. I think things with Donald Trump have gotten exponentially worse since 2018. And I think he's going to really be toxic this go round and that the Democrats will benefit John Hickenlooper on down. Tell us about the statehouse races. Is that what is projected right now? Yeah, I think, you know, for the most part, if you look at this, the state Senate, which is the more competitive chamber where there's races and the state house, you know, Republicans are going to continue to stay in the minority and potentially even lose some more power at the state house. So, so it's not looking like a good year for Republicans up and down the ballot. You know, I, I think the, the one real hope here is, you know, Cory Gardner, Donald Trump isn't really expected to win or fare that well in Colorado. And as you meant, as I just mentioned, right, the state house looks kind of out of reach for Republicans at this point. So the question is, you know, can Cory Gardner kind of be maybe be a bright spot on election night for Republicans? And that's where I think the focus is going to be here in the next few weeks heading into election day. Is Lauren Boebert part of your politics beat? She is. She's she's a really fascinating figure. You know, that that race is interesting. It's hard to tell kind of where things are at. You know, some of the polling the Democrats have put out show it statistically tied, but it's a Trump district. It was a district that voted overwhelmingly for the president in, in 2016. That backed a Republican again in 2018 when, as you mentioned, Republicans had a really bad night. So it's it's hard to say, you know, what, what's going to happen there. She's starting to pitch herself as a real middle of the road Democrat. She actually released an ad today in which she, on TV, it says that she's an independent, which she's not. She's a Democrat. Who are you talking about, Laura? This Mitch is Diane Bush. Bush. Yeah, this she is, said yeah, she's independent. Okay. She did. She has. She had an ad, and the ad says at the end of it, it says Diane Mitch Bush, and then underneath it, it says independent. They just don't like Democrats out there on the Western Slope. Any interesting DA races come to mind, or do they have those anymore? They do. I, I'm curious about the 18th Judicial District, who's going to replace George Brockler, 
That's a pretty fascinating race. You probably know more about it than I do. But. Kellner B. Patton, and I may have them on, but I think it's going to be just like the sheriff election where Dave Walter got beat last time. He had a good record. The department liked him. And an unknown Democrat won. And I think he was a patrol officer in some northern suburb jurisdiction or maybe Mountain View. So it was pretty extraordinary how much people in the suburbs of Denver rejected Donald Trump and took it out on members of his party on any DA's race. I'm betting on the Democrat, including Brian Mason, brother of Jeff Mason. I'm going to leave it there because I think it's cool that I educated you on something journalism related. Jeff Mason's a really eminent reporter at the White House, and I have a lot of respect for him. I'll get him back on the show pretty soon. But he's the one who told me about his brother and darned if his brother isn't in the Adams County DA. And maybe he could make a decision without Phil Weiser's help on Elijah McClain because the statute of limitations has not run, not even close. It's just been a little over a year. I don't know what the, the talk has been in that DA's race, but it's certainly interesting, right? I mean, there's a, there's a lot on the pallet this year and, and a lot of interesting issues that people are going to be fighting over. So I, I, I'm not planning on getting much sleep in the next six weeks or so. But it's pretty cool that you are in the thick of it and you are a great Definitely. writer and you're indefatigable. You, you hustle, you cover these great stories. Really appreciate your time today. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Jesse Paul. Sandler Training is one of the leading sales training and leadership development companies in all the world. If you're interested in increasing your win rates and revenue margins, increasing the number of salespeople exceeding quota, addressing sales manager professional development, reducing your turnover of sales personnel, it's all waiting for you at Sandler Training. Call my pal Dan Levitt at 303-829-2107 and tell him Craig sent you. Hey, Danny, what happens if somebody calls and says, hey, Craig sent me? Well, Craig, for the first few minutes, we'll probably tell some jokes about you. What? Yeah. And then I'll dig into, you know, what what's going on in their world and whether or not I'm a fit for what, you know, might, might be able to help them or not. He's an easy guy to talk to. I've been talking to him for so many decades. Call my old friend, Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107. 303-829-2107. Tell them Craig sent you. Hey there, I'm not going to take a lot of your time. I've been a lawyer almost 40 years. My brother was a lawyer. My father, a Denver lawyer. My grandfather, a Denver lawyer. If you have a legal problem, call me. 303-861-2800. 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800. Thank you. Gosh, it's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart. 
smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Welcome back to the lounge. Mario Nicholas, great to have you back. My fellow columnist at the Colorado Sun and my brother in the Colorado Bar. How are you, Mario? I'm great, Craig, and it is wonderful to be back with you on the podcast. I am so glad that you started this podcast. I think that it is a service to Colorado and to lawyers across our state to have you doing this again. And, you know, I was disappointed when it was no longer going to be on the radio, but, you know, the radio is dead and long live the internet and long live uh, your podcast. God bless you for saying that. Let's talk about Denver Trump radio, as I call it. I just am very disappointed to see a medium that I worked in and enjoyed. It's all changed under Donald Trump. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but it's changed somewhat. Would you agree? You know, maybe maybe somewhat, but I think I think, you know, it's it's something actually that's that's been an undercurrent for a long time. And and a lot of it, you know, remember going back, I mean, even if you look at someone like Rush Limbaugh, who's been around for literal decades, you know, almost almost a half century at this point, talking on radio on a national level, he's always been honest with people. And he said, hey, look, I'm an entertainer. I sell, you know, I sell things and I sell things to people and tell them what they want to hear. It's not my job to do news. It's my job to entertain. And I think I think that's really, you know, more and more radio talk show hosts have really bought into that, that, that they're not that they don't want to be this kind of the middle of the road and really tease out rational and reasonable arguments um, because that's not that's not what their audience is looking for. And I think that's probably what what they're doing is they're looking for, well, what does our audience wants? And they're just regurgitating back to them. Does that make us a better civil society? Absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, absolutely not. It leads it leads to a society that is as polarized and divided as we've ever been as a society. And I think that's unfortunate. And that's that's you know, and that, that's that's you know, I, I would say this. I think I think Donald Trump is more of a symptom than the cause as far as I'm concerned. And that's unfortunate. But I think it's just he's like jet fuel on the fire. Right. I mean, right. We, we had this nice little campfire that was, you know, there and it was burning and all of that. And then Donald Trump landed and suddenly, you know, all of the entire, you know, Western states are on fire. Right. So, I mean, I guess I guess I could say he he really just he, he took what was a fire and turned it into a raging inferno. I think that's right. And I'm reading Michael Cohen's book. Actually, it's being read to me on Audible. And it's fascinating how birtherism really did launch Donald Trump birtherism, which was the province of only certain talk radio hosts. I never went into birtherism, but others around here did. And Donald Trump wrote it right to the White House in the takeover of the GOP. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I've, I I actually wrote a column a while ago and called the Dunce State, and I was hoping to get people to take that on. And I've I've actually done a lot of research recently, basically on conspiracy theories and and, and you know, conspiracy theories are not just the world of uh, Republican politics; there are plenty on the left as well, and and they've been around, you know, since 
<laughs> since the beginning of time, you know, I mean, uh, there are probably biblical conspiracies and things of that nature. But, you know, I think one of the things that you're seeing right now is that conspiracy theories by their very nature have typically been a minority of the populace. And I think one of the things that's worrying about our current culture is it's turned into the majority, at least the majority of the Republican Party as it is right now is being guided by all these conspiracy principles, whether it's birtherism or QAnon or election fraud, for that matter. You know, I mean, that's something that we're going to have to deal with. And you, you could see it from the very beginning when Donald Trump came into office. The very first thing, I mean, one of the big original huge stories was about his inauguration, right? And you, you had Spicer go out there and, you know, talk about, or maybe it was Kellyanne Conway, talk about alternative facts. I think it was Kellyanne Conway. He said, well, we've got alternative facts. And, and when you talk about it like that, then you, you're really in a situation where, where any conspiracy goes. Because, frankly, I mean, anyone can say, well, I've got my facts and you've got yours. <laughs> That's not how facts should work, Craig. Right. <laughs> you, and I, you and I are lawyers. We've tried cases. Facts are facts. It's not okay, one side or not. I mean, I mean, if, if if alternative facts was an acceptable way to say, okay, well, they're just alternative facts, and we just see everything differently, then what the hell are we doing having trials? You know, um, right? I mean, wouldn't someone be guilty under one fact set, but innocent under the other? And since you can't really determine between them, you know, innocent, right? So, I I think as a country, we're really coming to a dangerous point on conspiracies and alternative facts and things of that nature. I used to think conspiracy theories were just kind of innocent. Some people were attracted to them. Others weren't. I always believe Lee Harvey Oswald fired that shot, but others had conspiracy theories. And I thought, well, that's okay. But I've become more educated on a lot of things. And this, these are the days of awe for a Jewish person between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And we reflect and repent and atone. And I wish I would have studied up more about Donald Trump. And I wish I would have understood at an earlier age, the connection between conspiracy theories and racism and bigotry and anti-Semitism. They're intertwined. Even that inauguration one was aimed at Barack Hussein Obama, who it turns out Donald Trump has hated for a long time primarily because he's a black guy. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know. I haven't read the book, so I don't know about that. But I, I mean, I can, I can tell you I can tell you this much. You don't have to look much past the housing policies that he implemented in so many of his different properties to realize that, that he it, he acts in a way that has substantial racial disparities and, and that that definitely has that in him. I don't know whether he has an intent to be racist. I don't know whether he truly dislikes minorities, African-Americans, Jewish folks. I, I mean, his lawyer for a long time was Jewish, you know, Cohen, but... Right. I mean, there was Roy Cohen and then Michael Cohen. Yeah, he's got family who's Jewish, but the problem so, so is... So maybe not that, but I mean, but I mean, certainly the African-American community. But it still might be. Just because he knows Jews who work for him doesn't mean that he doesn't espouse conspiracy theories to the detriment of the Jewish people like QAnon. I mean, QAnon right. is just a recirculation of the protocols of the elders of Zion. They're going to take yeah, their kids. Sure. They need them for these rituals. Be very afraid of these people. They're the global elites. They're a Hollywood. They're the bankers. They're George Soros. Maybe they're Jews. Maybe they're not. It's the same thing, isn't it? 
Well, I mean, I think I think it's a, I think it's a mix of a lot of different things. I would have I you know I I personally look at it and I think well you know actually what we're really talking about is we're talking about a reincarnation of the Birch you know the John Birch Society. But you know I mean I think it's I think I think you know the current conspiracy theories are a blend of these uh, these different things. Right, Mario. Let me let me just stop you because I've thought a lot about the John Birch Society and where I used to work, the morning host would regularly have guests from that organization. And I didn't like it because I know enough about Republican history that they were excluded by the likes of William Buckley, who said there's no room for anti-Semites in my idea of conservative Republicanism. Correct? I, I totally agree with you. And in fact, I, I did write about that, that Buckley, William F. Buckley was, in fact, the biggest antagonist of the John Burr Society. And, and actually, you know, and I think I think one of the things you're seeing in the modern uh, Republican Party is is a is a real battle between conservative intellectuals, people like William F. Buckley, people like Bill Kristol, you know, people like Charles Krauthammer, the late Charles, Charles Krauthammer, George Will, people like George Will, right? Exactly, and and you know, conspiracy theorists, <laughs> and and the conservative intellectuals are losing. They're losing this fight, and they've either lost or they're gone. Uh, you know, I mean. You know, you've got George Will left the party. You've got, you know, Bill Crystal in exile, you know, and so so it's just And you've got Scott Tipton, a lame duck, and you've got Lauren Boebert. What do you make of her? Is it fair to tag her with that QAnon tag? Oh, I think it's absolutely fair. I think it is. I think I think I think the only reason she doesn't out and out just say, yeah, I absolutely believe in it is because she knows it would hurt her electoral prospects. But that said, I mean, I think I think she's going to Congress. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I know Democrats really want to push. Mitch Bushy, uh, Bush in there, and then I, I think that's her name. Um, yes, Diana Mitch um, Bush. Mitch Bush, and and I know they really want to push that she's got a great chance and she's got a shot. It's just the, the district is just not there's just not enough there for them, I think, to get. No, maybe. I mean, you know, it's maybe. I, I if and I I actually wrote a column about this in God January, and I actually said Democrats needed to go out and they needed to get a really strong candidate. I just don't think she's it. Because if Bobert goes through and beat Tipton, then they would be in a great position to win. It's just I, I don't think, you know, Mitch Bush is a she's a milk toast candidate. And give give Lauren Bobert this, she eats the spotlight, right? I mean, she knows how to get on the radio and she knows how to get you know use that to her advantage and she knows how to get on television and use that to her advantage. I mean, that's how she even rose to prominence, right? She basically wore a gun to. Um, you know, to a to a rally, you know, and, and confronted, you know, a national Democrat, you know, over gun rights. Um, and so, you know, that's that's she knows what she's doing. You know, she basically called out Beto O'Rourke at that town hall and said, hey, you know, I believe in this. And so became a darling of the right. And and I think, you know, she speaks in phrases that, that are very simplistic, but also catchy that really work for folks who fall for conspiracy theories. Right. And so it works for her. And, you know, she's going to be a congresswoman, I think. I think I, if I had to bet against it, I, I bet she is going to. So I'm hoping for a complete Trump repudiation election. And I hope the people on the Western Slope and down in Pueblo, other parts of Colorado are smart enough to repudiate Trump. But I'm no expert on that. Mario, tell everybody your political background. What are your politics? <laughs> well, I'm, I've always told people I'm a conservative and I believe it's, you know, I'm a classical conservative. So I. I align myself, you know, that's that's why I'm a little bit sad to see, you know, the, the demise of the 
traditional um, conservative intellectual. So I looked up to people like George Will and William F. Buckley. In fact, William F. Buckley was why I became um, Republican in the first place, because just his grasp of language and ideas and the power of them and getting it across, I thought were phenomenal and attracted me to the Republican Party. So I, you know, I was part of, you know, went to CU. I was a, you know, young Republicans there. I've worked on campaigns across Colorado for Republicans. You know, I ran one of Mike Kaufman's campaigns. I worked on one of Bob Schaefer's campaigns. Um, I worked for Marilyn Musgrave um, once upon a time, you know, and then I've, I, I was actually in New York and worked in the headquarters for Rudy Giuliani when he ran for president. Did all that, but then became an attorney. And I've worked for basically the last most of the last 15 years as an attorney and best known for at least campaign finance and election law. So I've represented a lot of the shadowy interest groups and trade associations and groups like that for almost two decades. What happened to the Republican Party? I've never been a part of it. I know a lot of people in it, but my God, do you have to question everything that you used to believe, given that you were associated with people who are now Trumpsters? Well, I mean, I think the ideals that I believed on still exist. I mean, I just, you know, parties evolve and parties change. I think, I think you're not, you know, you're, what you're looking at with the Democratic Party right now, Democratic Socialism, is only trailing what the Republicans did 10 years ago. So they might be in the same, they might be in the same boat in 10 years. And I think parties change, they move. I would say the Republican Party, you know, that I fell in love with and loved is, is not, doesn't exist anymore. I don't think it does. I don't think that this is the, party of fiscal conservatism anymore. I don't think it's the party that, that says, you know, we believe in both liberty and equality. I think the Republican Party and a lot of the people, at least that are part of it, have really, really put an overemphasis on liberty without understanding that there is no such thing as a true liberty if you do not have equality. And I don't mean equality of outcome. I mean, equality before the law I mean equality, you know, to begin with. And, you know, too many Republicans don't realize that that, that doesn't, you have to have that and you have to have that existence. And you know, I, I think that's that's been a downfall for Republicans. And I think that's kind of what's hurt them. Right, But we could go back and forth on policy issues and we still might even in this interview. But it's Donald Trump. He's a rogue character. He's a lying, racist, yeah. bully and a bad guy. Why can't Republicans stand up and say that? I think that a lot of them have trouble because the base loves him. Their base loves him. And that's that's exactly what I think it is. And that's, that's the problem. It's almost like the talk radio argument. We just had, well, the audience yeah. wants it this way. So we have to give yeah. the people what they want. Well, what about what's right? Well, I think, I think, I, you know, I want to go back to that point though, Craig. I think one of the things you have to look at is if we're talking about what's wrong with the Republican party, maybe it's not what's wrong with the Republican party. What's wrong with our system. And I, and I have to tell you the biggest, the biggest issue that I think that we have in our system is primaries and the way that we do primaries because you know our the people who are running are chosen in primaries typically nominated through them and those primaries have such a low percentage of the population participating that all you need are these very vocal dedicated super minorities to make that change and and the republican party has been particularly susceptible to it i think the democratic party is starting to become more susceptible to it as well and that's why we're seeing this vast polarization and of course, there's also redistricting and reapportionment and the number of just simply safe districts that no one from the other side is ever going to win. But, you know, our primaries are definitely a, a big problem for us. I get a kick out of writing columns. I expect you do as well. How long have you been doing it? You are really good at it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, I like yours as well. 
I started writing columns, I think, of 2015 for the, <laughs> for the old Colorado Statesman. And I wrote for them for a few years. And then Chuck Plunkett asked me to write for the Denver Post. Wrote for them for a couple of years. But, you know, I was there when they had the great, you know, Media Matters article that came out in, you know, in, in April of, I guess it was 2018. Basically, that, that editorial board came out and kind of chastised all the capital of the owners. And I was one of the folks who wrote one of those. Now, they didn't fire me after that, but Carter's son approached me to ask if I would write for them. I wrote one column for them, and the number post said, well, you can't write for them, too. And I said, well, my contract says I did. And they said, well, we, we, don't, we don't have to publish you. And I said, yeah, you sure don't. So, so I asked Larry Reichman if I could write for the Sun full time. And he said, absolutely. We'd love to have a once a week column from you. And so that's that's what I've been doing. And I, I love it. I, I love it because it gets me to really look critically at what's going on. I try to give it a I try to use a very critical eye when I'm when I'm writing and maybe try to find issues that other people haven't seen before, or aren't really talking a whole lot about. I think you'll like my column this Sunday. My column this Sunday is all about what states and some of the some of the critical states out there are doing with all mail ballots and what they're doing wrong and what they need to change. Specifically, they need they need to move forward the dates when they start processing Absolutely. mail ballots. Absolutely, it takes away Trump's argument. They have to do that. Yeah. Why not count them as they come in? That's what we do in Colorado, correct? That's right. That's exactly right. And, and that's what I'm saying is I, I point out, you know, Colorado does this right, and we we have done it right under Republican secretaries of state. We've done it right under Democrat secretaries of state. We, we, the rest of the country should be following us, and as you get them, you should be processing them. And we start counting. We start counting the actual votes. So they'll be processed and verified before they're counted. But we start counting on the day that early voting begins. So the day early voting begins, we also start counting those ballots. So that's why in Colorado, when we have our election, I mean, I think most political observers can tell you in Colorado, most most races, you know, the outcome of the race between 730 and 8. State of the art. And I knew all that because I was writing my column on the same thing, but I'll rip it up now. I'll let you go on Monday. I'm sorry. I didn't didn't, didn't know that. I didn't mean to steal from anything. I have a backup topic. It's exciting. But let's talk about the Supreme Court appointment. Maybe I'll write about that. It appears it's going to be Amy Coney Barrett. What do you think? The Supreme Court has rarely had such a radical shift. What does it mean? Will she get through? How's this going to turn out for America? Yeah, I mean, so here's the thing. I, I mean, I don't I don't know that much about her. I've read a lot of her stuff. She seems to be qualified. Um, and, and you know, I, I tend to prefer conservative justices. You know, she I believe she was a, um, a law clerk for Scalia, so definitely believes in a lot of the same perspectives as Scalia. I don't I don't know if she has quite the wit or the um, sense of humor or just the personality of Scalia. But we'll find out. I think that she'll get through. I think I think there's really nothing that Democrats can do to stop her from getting through. I think the question is, does she do they confirm her before or after the election? And, you know, I think I think it should be done after the election. And if it is before, I think she should recuse herself from anything to do with this election, because I think it's just entirely unfair for for someone like Donald Trump to be appointing a judge who may then rule on a case directly involving him within a few months. I, I, I mean, I, there is precedent. He's appointed club pros at his golf courses who he calls and says, declare me the club champion. And the club pro does it. He's running our country right. like it's one of his country clubs and he's going to win another fake club championship. I mean, it's ridiculous and frightening, but here's my analysis. And this may be my column for Monday. 
which is Roe v. Wade may go away. And it's like the dog mm -hmm. catching the car. My God, in Colorado, you think we might be a blue state now? We will be a totally blue state because we were the first state to legalize abortion. It's always going to be legal in Colorado until Amy Coney Barrett says you can't even have first-term abortions. But until that time, Colorado will have legalized abortions. I'm not sure about Utah or Mississippi or Alabama, and I'm old enough to remember when women had to travel to other states to get abortions. Isn't that what it might come down to? And isn't that just a disaster for Republicans to win in Colorado? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I think I think Republicans are in a hole in Colorado in a, in a bad way. And and I mean, I don't I don't know what they're going to need to do to change. And I don't know that they can change. I don't know that they haven't kind of latched themselves, you know, so they haven't latched themselves so tightly to the anchor that now that it's sinking, they have no way to get up. Right. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that I'd even look just at Colorado. I'd say I'd say it could it could change the landscape for Republicans across the country for a generation. And it'll be interesting to see where we go from there. I mean, and it'll change what the Supreme Court looks like, you know, because because if they're willing to overlook precedent like that and, and move it that that dramatically, then really does stare decisis even exist anymore at that point? Um, are we going to have precedent or give value to precedent? Now, that said. I do think that there that that you know huh, it could be a decision that surprises a lot of people when you do have people you know judges and I'm doing air quotes here who were appointed by Republicans who might come back later and say you know this is not you know a law that I like and it's not you know an outcome that I like but I can't we can't rule against precedent because that's one of the reasons I like conservative justices better I, I think I think they tend not to let their own desire for an outcome overrule what they believe the law says. My favorite quote from Scalia has always been the judge who likes every outcome he was ever written is not a good judge, you know, and, and I think that's right. I think that's right is, is sometimes you got to hate you know, the decision you come to, but that's just what the law is. What is going to be the outcome of the Cory Gardner versus John Hickenlooper race? Well, I, well, Hickenlooper is going to win. I think that's my that's my take on this is that Hickenlooper is going to win. You know, I feel badly for Cory. I had always hoped that Cory Gardner was going to be a line in the Senate. For decades, and I think he got caught up in a really ugly headwind, and he got he got caught between a base that that he couldn't he couldn't move away from Trump without them abandoning him or primarying him, and a general election electorate that that will never support someone who supports Trump. So I think I think the better question is, does Hickenlooper win by ten or more? I don't think he does. I think Hickenlooper comes in under ten. I think he comes in somewhere between six and eight. I like Corey. He did a lot of radio with me. He showed me around the Capitol, not just me, but my son, Sam, could not have been more nice. But I don't feel sorry for him because he had a chance to be an American hero on the Ukrainian shakedown. He should have voted to hear evidence. And on other occasions, he stood with Donald Trump, where I think history will judge him harshly. I thought Cory Gardner would make a different decision. He didn't vote for Donald Trump. I'm the schmuck who did. So he was smarter than me back then. I thought he's just a big disappointment to me, Cory Gardner. He was going to lose regardless. I can see where if he went against the president, he would lose Republican support. But so what? Donald Trump is a clear and present danger to America. I believe that. You're a CU law grad. Do you see it that way? Yeah, I, I absolutely do. I, I think I think. Donald Trump is trying to make our country into, into an autocracy. I think you just can't argue against that. Um, when he wants to 
delay the election, when he wants to go out there and say, I will not allow for the peaceful transfer of power. Those are direct quotes out of, you know, the, the how to become an autocracy, you know, Mussolini. Um, being a dictator. I mean, that's exactly what you're looking at. And any, any dictator has used that exact same path to power. And I think that's, that's what he's doing. I mean, I guess, I guess we know exactly what he was talking to Putin about when he refused to have an inter- you know, anyone record it or, or any other uh, State Department people around. That's probably what he was talking about is, hey, how do I become you? Right. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I think you're onto something. For one, Michael Cohen can. I don't think it's a conspiracy. I, I think he just wants it. And Michael Cohen confirms that Donald Trump regarded Putin not just as a great leader, but the richest man on earth. And that is what Donald Trump really loves. He loves money. He loves getting his own hands on money. And he's an amoral person. Putin is a thug and a bully. And I believe Nancy Pelosi when she says all roads lead to Putin. Do you? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I, I absolutely do. I, I think I think I always said that I thought that the people around him were too dumb to actually coordinate with Russia. But I think also Russia was too smart. They just Russia. Russia knows they, they didn't they didn't need these folks to coordinate with them. They could do it all by themselves. But they wanted to let them know they were doing it and they needed some of the information from them. So they just took it and ran with it. Russia is basically the biggest, baddest, largest shadow group in American politics, right? I mean, I mean, we we have Democrats running around worrying about 527s and 501c4s and things of that nature, but none of them compare to Russia because you know none of them have state power and state services. You know, Donald Trump's coming in a close second. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, he's absolutely using the the force of the government to try to help him get elected, I and mean, that should scare the hell out of anyone. And and that. And I don't, I don't know, I don't know how you call yourself a conservative, Craig, if you believe and allow that sort of thing to happen. And I guess that's that's where you know my disappointment with Senator Gardner comes from is you swore an oath to protect the Constitution, and and I think that you know one of the things that I've always loved about conservatives is they take that to heart. At least I've always thought they took it to heart more and would put you know put that above party. You know I've been proven wrong over the last four years. The vast majority didn't. Now, you know, on occasion, some of them do. I think I think, you know, Mitt Romney has been has been good about that. I think John McCain was good about that, but very few. I don't understand Romney and he still has a chance to stand up. And I voted for Mitt Romney myself. But the other day when he said he would approve a Trump appointee. Come on, Mitt. You already said the guy should be thrown out of office for corruption. And now you are going to let him appoint a Supreme Court justice when we're on the precipice of an election. I want to take my vote back. And the other thing is I voted against Barack Obama his second term. I voted for him first term. He moved too far left for me. But one thing we can say in hindsight, Mario, Barack Obama was no radical. If he would have been, we would have seen it after his presidency. He's a normal guy with a wife and kids, and he's trying to get by like the rest of us. Am I right? Oh, absolutely. And, and, uh, you know, Barack Obama was never trying to move us. I think he understood that you move through incrementalism and that you're not going to throw the giant bombs that AOC or, you know, Bernie Sanders throw and that that, that's never going to work. Then all it's going to do is lead to is going to lead to actually a lurch in the other direction, which is exactly what you're seeing with Donald Trump. Right. You have someone who is that far and that extreme. And it looks like our country is lurching the other way. And, and that's why they're shoving through the Supreme Court nomination. 
right, is because they understand that it's very unlikely that um, President Trump actually wins the election. You know, they're, they're going to claim, oh, fraud, that he won the actual real election, and I guarantee it. But they also understand there's a good chance they lose the Senate, too. So, you know, all levers of power could could be out of their hands, you know, six months from now. And deservedly so. Deservedly yeah. so. Yeah. Well, and for and for for a long period of time too. I mean, I, I don't I don't think I don't think this is going to change. I mean, I think I think one of the things the Republican Party is going to have to deal with, Greg, is what do you do with a post presidency Donald Trump? Because you know, and I know that he's going nowhere, and that he loves the spotlight, and he's going to continue to hog that spotlight in the Republican Party until the day he dies. I, I think he's going somewhere. If there's justice in this world, oh. I think he's going to prison. I think he's good for lots yeah. of felonies. We already know Michael Cohen is doing time for individual one who did a campaign yeah. finance transaction. If it would have come out that he had sex with Stormy Daniels before the election, he would not have won the race. So that was a huge campaign payoff and to the detriment of the American people. And that's the yep. least of it. All his shakedowns, his shady schemes. We need to find out. And the tax fraud is going to be manifest. I don't know if you read the Mary Trump book, but it pulled his pants down. And now she's suing him. And deservedly so. He cheated his own niece and nephew out of big money. That's the kind of guy we're talking about. Yeah, no, I, I, don't, I, don't, think, I don't think he has a moral fiber in his entire body. Uh, I think that's that's absolutely true. And but doesn't I mean, he have to worry about jail? Isn't that why we're in such oh, yeah. a calamity right now? He's not going to go easily. He realizes his fate and he's going to take all of us down before he goes down willingly. How does this play out? Oh, I, I think that's true. I think that's true. And I think there's a good chance they prosecute against him. But, you know, I, I think that's one of those things where it's going to take time and there's going to be, you know, a lot of people on one side versus the other side. and you're going to have a lot of that playing out. But I, I guess my point is that that could be years in the making versus truly. I mean, I, I, I really, I really, regardless of that, even, even if he goes to jail, I think he's going to try to rule the Republican party after he's in jail because he's, he's had the taste of being in the center of the spotlight and he views the Republican party as his own personal play toy. You know, I mean, I think there are a lot of Republicans out there, Craig, right now, who, you know, in person, private would say, yeah, I hate the guy, you know, and I, you know, I really dislike him. And but, you know, I got to play with it so that we can have a chance, you know, to have a say, you know, and the Republican Party regrows itself. And, you know, they regularly give me a hard time because they're like, oh, you're a burn the party kind of down kind of guy. And I'm like, you know, you, you, you want to burn the house down. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I see someone burning the house down and I'm yelling at you to get out because there's a fire. <laughs> And and, you know, I mean, I think what people don't realize is that is that he's going to be a cancer that doesn't go away. There are a lot of Republicans who think that, well, once he's out of office, you know, we can sweep it under the carpet and it'll be gone. Donald Trump's not going anywhere. He is going to make sure that he's the most important part person in the Republican Party for decades to come. And as long as he's a major part of the Republican Party, then I'm not going to vote for any Republicans. What about you? Do you say who you're going to vote for and why? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. I'm going to vote for Biden. And what about Corey versus John Hickenlooper? That's a lot tougher one for me. You know, I think I will probably wind up voting for Hickenlooper only because I, I really, I really, really, I think Corey lost me the moment when he voted for the national emergency and allowed to allow Donald Trump you know, that kind of power 
that was outside of, you know, legislative oversight. And I was like, no, now, now we have violated the, the separation of powers that's at the very heart of the Constitution. So for me, that's when Corey lost me. And like I said, I like Corey a lot. I and, do too. And, and, I think, and I think he's done some really good things in the Senate. I, mean, I don't think Hickley Roberts is going to make a particularly good senator. But this is, one of, this is one of those times I have, I have to put, you know, what my you know, personal beliefs and morals are ahead of that. He's the luckiest politician in the world, John Hickenlooper, because Cory Gardner got my vote last time, just like you, I suppose, against you at all. But he has not stood up to Donald Trump and we're saying it different ways. But we both are not going to vote for him again because of his association with the actions of Donald Trump. Yeah, that's uh, I think that's exactly right. I think it's exactly right. And I think, um, you know, I've, I've been working with Lincoln Project a lot. And, you know, one of the, you know, their mandate is to, you know, to defeat Donald Trump and Trumpism at the, um, you know, at the ballot. And so, and I mean, I think that's, that's the issue is you, you, you've got to pull, you can't just pull the plant. you got to get the root too. Right. And so you got to get it all up. And, right. and unfortunately the folks who have, who have allowed Trump to do this and have aided him and abetted him. I, I don't, I don't know how you come back from that. They have to be pulled out. That's interesting. I give money to the Lincoln Project, but you sound like you are more involved in that. Are you actually contributing ideas and advertisements and some legal work? Nice. <laughs> so yeah, I've been I've been doing um so, some work with them. I you know I know a couple of the founders and I've known them for years just through my political um, work. And so you know I I I I called them up really early. I, I called them up right when they formed last December and said, hey. Great job putting this together. What can I do to help? So kind of contributed a little bit here, gave some ideas. I did not know they were going to come out against Cory Gardner as the very first thing that they did. <laughs> that actually took me by surprise. I had no idea that was coming. But Sounds like you just made up your mind right here that you're going to vote for Hickenlooper over Gardner. Oh, no, I think I knew I was going to. I just, you know, I, 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 that, that's one where I just like Cory so much. I feel badly about it. But then I, I look at the votes that he's taken. And what he's done, such a disappointment. And, and here's the thing: I vote for Hickenlooper, and then you know, if Republicans put up a good candidate um, against him in six years, they're more likely going to get my vote as long as it's a decent candidate, you know, and, and and a good candidate, and someone who I believe will actually serve in a constitutional manner. I just don't think that Corey's doing that. Lauren Boebert. No, I'm just kidding. What about Joe <laughs> Biden? I love the presentation of his life. I thought I knew all about him, but at the DNC, I learned some more stuff. And I liked his reaction late this week when he says, I'm ready for the debate. I was an athlete. I know how to handle bullies. And I think he has the stature to win this debate. I'm going to bet on Joe Biden if it was offered at FanDuel or DraftKings. I'd even bet on it. How about you? Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think I think Joe Biden has been doing this since he was 29 years old, right? I mean, he's been a U.S. senator, vice president. I mean, the the last four years is the first time that he hasn't been, you know, a member of the governing body of the United States in decades, right? And so he he knows how to do this. He's done it for a long time. I think he I think I think his 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 really though his silver bullet is his compassion and his empathy and his ability to connect with people because it is so opposite of Trump, right? And it's also opposite, and this is the important part, of Hillary Clinton. Yes. You know, people people just, you know, Donald Trump won because 
lots of people did not want to vote for Hillary Clinton. Like me. I did not vote. Right. Look, I didn't vote for Trump. I didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. I voted for Gary Johnson in 2016. You know, that, that was who I was voting for. I know Gary. I like him. I think he's a great guy. And I think he had, I think he has a really underrated resume that people really didn't take a close look at. But I didn't like either of them, so I didn't, I didn't do it. But I also, I also knew that Colorado wasn't going to vote for Trump anyway. It might have been a little bit closer if I thought that Colorado might vote for Trump. I might have considered Clinton. But, you know, but it did matter. It mattered in places like Wisconsin and it mattered in places like Pennsylvania. And it mattered, you know, in places like Michigan where people just didn't like Clinton. And they just, and they're like, ah, oh, God, I, I hate her. And, and so maybe I'll just, I'll just go with. Right. And 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 we all feared she was corrupt through the Clinton Foundation. In fact, I had Gary Johnson on my show about two weeks before the election, and he said, you can't vote for Hillary Clinton because she'll probably get impeached right away. And it was like, <laughs> that made national news, is Gary Johnson right. predicting impeachment That's of right. Hillary Clinton. So it's a small world. But forget these petty competitions. Let's talk about what really matters. The Nuggets versus the Lakers. Can the Nuggets yeah. come back once again from 3-1 down? Well, here's the thing, Craig. I think last night was the first time in NBA history that a team went up 3-1 and said to themselves in their head, oh, geez, we just lost a series. <laughs> right. We are recording this late Friday, and I have the pleasure of telling you, you are sharing the stage with an NBA icon. Mario, you're a lot younger than me. Where were you in 1970, 50 years ago? Were you even alive? Yeah, I was. I was. I was um, not even a, a little twinkle in my dad's eye. So. <laughs> All right. Well, your dad would probably remember, and your extended family, because you're a Colorado kid, grew up around Green Mountain. There was a rookie who came to Denver named Spencer Haywood, fresh off winning the 1968 Olympics in Mexico. The leading scorer as a teenager, he went to Trinidad Junior College, and somehow Ringsby, who owned the Denver Rockets, got him to sign and play here. He averaged over 30 points, over 20 rebounds. He was the rookie of the year. He was the MVP of the league. And we had a game seven against the Washington Capitals, led by Rick Barry and Larry Brown, that I was at at the Denver Coliseum. Spencer Haywood is my guest on this show. and. He played for the Lakers and the Rockets. He's in the NBA Hall of Fame. And I'm just ecstatic. I can tell you that interview is great. But this Nuggets team is a lot of fun to watch. And Jamal Murray, Nikola Jokic, it's incredible entertainment. What do you think of people who say, I'm not going to watch it? I don't like pro sports. Oh, you know, I mean, get over yourselves. So, so first, a couple of things. Anyone who says these guys shouldn't be using their platform to do that, that is their platform. <laughs> you know, that is where they can actually affect their voice. And, and so, you know, I believe in their First Amendment right to do it. I think they should be allowed to do it. And I, and I think people should be supportive of it. So I and that what I really love, you know, if you I mean, I hope LeBron goes down. But but his organization that he started, I think that that's all about, you know, more than a vote. I, I think people should absolutely visit that. And and I think I think he is going he he actually could beat Donald Trump. Because remember, he actually I think has more Twitter Twitter followers than Trump. And certainly he is a very powerful voice in minority communities and communities that typically do not vote at a rate that is as high as other communities. 
And I, you know, if he drives them to the polls, I mean, I think, you know, Trump could swamp, you know, he's the kind of guy who could drive them to the polls and Trump might lose Georgia. You know, right. Um, I agree uh, in the power of King James. What a will he has. And I think he's handled fame and fortune pretty darn well. But let me push back just a little. And my nephew, Andrew, reminded me of this because I always hail LeBron as a great character. And I like the way he stands up to Donald Trump. And I like the way he maintains his family and his image. But what about China? What do you do with the NBA and China, was that a sellout? I mean, do we all have our price? Should LeBron well, and the NBA have stood up more against China? Yeah, I think they should. I think that, you know, they're, they're trying to sell to China because China is a, you know, is a, is a, is a huge market and there's a lot of money to be made there. But I mean, how much more money do you need to make when you're at that point? So, you know, I think, I think that's true. And then also, you know, but I mean, Hey, look, LeBron knows, I mean, to tie it back to this election, I mean, you can't you can't tell me that LeBron wasn't working the refs the way that Trump is working the Supreme Court. Um, you know, hey, you got to give me these calls. I mean, if anyone who watched that last game and watched him go to line, meanwhile, while they're giving fat lips and uh, elbows and knees to the groin of Jamal Murray and he can't get a call to save his life. I mean, that's just a travesty. So it is a travesty. And what I explained to my nephew is what about detente? The more we can get Western exposure in China, they can learn about LeBron James. They can get over a lot of the things that have held them back, like racism, which they've had against black people. We just need to expose the world to different kinds of people. And I asked this of Spencer Haywood, and I asked this of you, Mario. Where are we at on the racism scale in America? Is it terrible or are we just hearing the last gasps of our racist past yeah i you know that's a really good question and i think i think what what you're seeing is that what we have is and i like to say it's systematic racial disparity i, I think racism impl- implies an intent but i think a lot of our systems and institutions suffer from you know being set up during a time when people had true racism um, in their hearts and and believe that. And so the institutions were created that way. And so it, it has perpetuated this systematic racial disparity, you know, in, in our country. And that needs to be dealt with. And it, it, it absolutely has to be dealt with. And, and how do we fix that? You know, it's, it's you know, we, we talk about Black Lives Matter and the number of particularly Black Americans who are killed by police officers. The, the Washington Post has a great tracker about this. There are actually more white people killed by police on any given year, but that's because they have a bigger majority. The, if you look proportionally, proportionally, black Americans are twice as likely to be killed by police. And that's just, that's just in police-involved shootings. That doesn't even include in custody, you know, like George Floyd, or people who, who were not, you know, the target, like, I don't know what the Breonna Taylor would be included in there. So, there is clearly an issue we have to deal with. You know, the, the, the thing I would say, though, is that you know, I think I'm glad that America is at least an open place to, to have these discussions and have it really kind of come forward and move forward. Because I, I don't know, I think you might know this, but I'm a huge soccer fan and, and I, I watch a lot of soccer. And through that, you get glimpses of what racism looks like in other countries and, and in Europe and places like Russia and I can tell you, those places, a lot of those places look look like 19, you know, early 1960s America, where you have absolute segregation still in place and you have really, really uh, targeted violence. Now, I'm not saying there's not targeted violence right now. I, I, 
I worry a lot about the rise in white nationalism in this country, or at least the the re-rise of white nationalism. It seems to be having a rebirth under this this uh, current president, and I, I'm concerned about that. But I, I think you know when I look at other countries, it's at least at least we're a place where enough people can get behind it to have you know to really bring it to a, a head that we're going to have these discussions. Right. And, and I think there's gonna, there are going to be changes. I think there are going to be real changes. Unless. Sure. What happens if Donald Trump gets reelected? Well, I mean, I think you won't see it at the national level, but I think one of the things that you have to, you know, you really have to focus on is a lot of most law enforcement, right, is done at a, and if we're just talking about law enforcement, and by the way, systematic racial disparity is in a whole lot of other areas, right? But if we're just talking about law enforcement, because that's really the emphasis of what we're looking at right now when we talk about Black Lives Matter. Most of that's on the local level, right? I mean, when you're talking about police forces and things like right, that, but it's it local seeps level. down. It seems down, especially the way he's courted the police. But I'm not just talking about race relations, just the ability of you and I to write our columns or express ourselves here on a podcast. I don't know how we will feel if we wake up and Donald Trump is still in charge. Well, people keep fighting. Well, if people can't stand the man. What's going to happen? I mean, some people love him, but I think a lot of us are just determined that he won't be president. But if he is, how will you, Mario Nicholas, how will you react? Uh, um, Well, probably going to throw up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, beyond that, I mean, I think I think you then then you just kind of move forward and say, well, what can I do to make this world a better place? you know, in spite of this, despite of this, you know, through this, and how can I change it going forward? And, you know, what do I need to do to be a positive force? You know, I mean, sometimes, sometimes people like you and I get too close to the fire because we're so used to it, Craig, and, you know, we're we're political junkies, and there's still a lot of good that you can do for people um, out there, and I guess that's that's what I would focus on. I mean, I I guess the other thing that you got to look at is, well, how do we stop him from trying to get a third term? (laughs) Because he's not supposed to have one, but he's already said he would seek another one, right? And I, I mean, he'll say he's joking around right now, but I mean, can you tell me that in three years he's not going to say, yeah, I do deserve another one and not be joking? Because I, I think he will. And that's one thing Michael Cohen makes clear. The guy doesn't joke. In fact, he said that before. I don't joke. So we need to take everything he says seriously. And we've had a great serious discussion. I'm worried about our country. I know you are too. We're both doing what we can to try to end this terrible situation so we can go back debating normal politics and policies. Wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) Absolutely. Without doubt. Well, you're the best, Mario. You're a great lawyer, great columnist, and you're an excellent guest once again in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. I can't thank you enough for spending so much time with me. Well, I'm honored to be a part of uh, your podcast, Craig, and and I I hope it just takes off and becomes viral because you're a great host. Thank you very much. See you around campus. Bye. Bye, Craig. This is The Craig Silverman Show, and I'm Craig. Our democracy is at stake. It's never been more important to let your voice be heard. Join the conversation and fight for our democracy. It is our duty and our constitutional right. Follow The Craig Silverman Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at C. Silverman Show be a part of the change. Now, back to the Craig Silverman show. I really enjoyed putting on this show, talking to Spencer Haywood. That was special. 
It's great to be a part of the Colorado Sun with professionals like Jesse Paul and lawyer columnists like Mario Nicholas. I am especially happy to be in your company. Thank you for listening to my podcast. See you next Saturday morning. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.